Hi, everybody. Sifan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. 2nd of July, 2014. So uh, just before we start the show, I did get a message from a woman who's, I mean, suffering, and of course a family that is suffering just what must be astonishing and astounding and horrifying emotional tragedy. This is the mother of one of Elliot Rogers' victims. For those who don't know, and I don't imagine there's too many of you out there who don't know, but uh, Elliot Roger was the uh, young shooter who killed three of the men living in his assisted living facility before he went on the shooting rampage in Isla Vista in California recently. And uh, we did a video here from Free Domain Radio. We did a video on um, the truth about Elliot Roger, which is I think somewhere north of half a million views, which is a fantastic, I mean, just on YouTube, that doesn't count the downloads, which is a pretty fantastic way to get the peaceful parenting message across to a lot of people. I mean, you never want those kinds of situations to be the platform on which people may listen, but it was, in this case, the best I felt that could be done with such a horrendous tragedy. So we got a message from the mother of one of his victims, and she said, uh, I guess she watched The Truth About Elliot Roger. We'll, we'll put a link to this in the notes to the video and the podcast. You should really watch it if you haven't already. Whether you're that interested in his particular situation or not, I think it's useful and important, I would dare say, essential stuff to know. She wrote, Hi, Stefan. Thanks for sharing. You've made some great points. I am the mother of George Chen, who was one of the first three victims. My family and I are experiencing the enormous pain of losing our beloved son. We agree that Elliot's miserable childhood, such as lack of love from his father, an abusive stepmother, paternal abandonment, physical insecurities, extreme loneliness, etc. These are her words, of course. Had caused tremendous pain and hatreds inside him. In a way, Elliot's cold-blooded and selfish father had turned the poor kid into a monster. As a mother... I feel so sorry for the kids that are suffering from abusive parents. Although it is too late to save my son's life, it is not too late to save other children. Please share your ideas on reaching out and helping other potential Elliots. I have faith that with love and care and proper treatment, every child can have a beautiful life. Every child deserves a beautiful life. You may also visit George Chen's RIP page on Facebook and leave your messages there. Please support our goal to end the senseless killing of the innocents to love and care for every single child. Uh, please. Uh, please, uh, to, sorry, let me just get the right. So, um, I just wanted to give the, um, uh, George Chen's RIP page is facebook.com forward slash RIP George Chen. Mike, was there anything that you wanted to add to that? I just was really struck by the message. I, the idea that the mother of one of the victims could watch the presentation and be impressed with it was, I mean, considering how popular their presentation wound up being, it's, uh, I guess, not surprising. It's something that never even dawned on me, but I was incredibly proud of you know, our coverage of that terrible situation. And like you said, Steph, if there's some small positive that can be taken out of such a tragedy, it's to look at the origins of what made it happen and give voice to those origins 
and hopefully people can take steps as we're trying to do to make sure stuff like that does not happen in the future. So the fact that we could get a message from one of the mothers of the victims, um, I just I was really struck by that and how wonderful it was that she, you know, took the time to share that in the time of going through just unimaginable pain that I can't even fathom. So uh, that was really really kind of her and yeah, you know, it's not like it's not like we're gonna stop talking about the effects of peaceful parenting and how crucial and important it is and situations like this really bring that to the forefront. So. Yeah, and I mean, I guess she, like all of us, but of course, infinitely more so with this uh, woman, she's looking for answers. How could these, how could this situation have come about? How could this man have gone from, you know, the great peaceful and innocent fetus to a homicidal, suicidal murderer and uh, I mean of course the, the the fundamental answer is nobody knows nobody knows for sure and I still of course uh, accept the philosophical basis of, of free will and because of that we will never know for sure because there are choices uh, I think as Ayn Rand pointed out the choice is what you focus on and what you choose to avoid, whether you think and focus your mind or whether you dissociate and space out. And those are choices. So I don't believe there will ever be a certain answer as to why somebody does something like that. Somebody asked uh, if I wished that Elliot Roger had called in to this show. And uh, I'm of two minds about that, honestly. I don't know. I mean, I certainly would have bent every effort of will and concentration that I had to listen to him, to try and understand. As Marilyn Manson said when, when he was asked, what would you say to the Columbine shooters? He says, I wouldn't say anything. I would listen because that's apparently what nobody else did. So I don't know. I mean, because is there a too lightness to this kind of tragedy where intervention doesn't help? I don't know. I'm also sensitive, of course, to the fact that uh, if he had called into this show and I'd talked to him and then he'd gone on a mass shooting, well, good Lord. <laughs> right. Internet radio show drives innocent man to mass shooting. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we, we don't mind testing the limits of there's no such thing as bad publicity, but maybe not that far. So I don't know. I certainly would have liked to have talked to him at some point in the years leading up to it. Uh, and, and by that, it mostly means asking him about his childhood and listen. Uh, but uh, who knows when the point of no return had occurred. I think about, and I've thought about this a number of times since the shooting, I think about that morning. Right, The morning that he woke up on the day that he was going to do such immense evil. I think about that morning. You know, he's walking down the hallway with a knife, and he he's going to kill. I don't know if he knew he was going to kill three people. I don't know if it just was bad luck, wrong place, wrong time for the people there. But I do think about that morning and whether there was any way that he could have turned back at that point. You know, until the knife goes into the first body, everything is recoverable. After that, it seems to me there's really not any 
or much turning back. But before that, was there any, you know, did he feel like he was in that Doors song, the end? The killer walks on down the hall. Is he out of his body completely? Is he observing his own evil doppelganger from a midpoint above his head? I don't know. Until that first knife goes in. And I assume that, like Che Guevara, he liked it. Because yeah, otherwise, he, if he found himself repulsed and throwing up and so on, then he would have stopped. But he must have found that he really liked it. And that is a horrifying thing to contemplate. But I always wonder, before the evil is irrevocable, whether there is a sense of a potential to turn back, to avoid, to change, to reverse, whether people scare themselves by their own imminent evil to the point where they will run back into something saner and humane. I don't know. We'll never know in this particular situation, of course, because uh, he's dead, but I certainly appreciate uh, the email, and I, I basically just wrote back and said, look, I mean, I'm incredibly sorry for what you're going through. It is a horrifying tragedy. And I mean, I can't say for certainty that it was the parenting that caused this. I mean, nobody can. I think it's a damn fine place to start. And it doesn't matter if you think it does or it doesn't. It's good to treat your children well. <laughs> I mean, it's just a moral and right thing to do, to listen and to love and to be curious and to uh, be gentle and to reason. I mean, whether we feel, <laughs> I don't sort of wake up every morning as a parent and say, well, it's really important for me to prevent mass murder by being nice to my child. Because it's not like I have a burning itch to be not nice to her, which I then restrain through potential disastrous effects. So nobody knows for sure. But I wrote back and I just said, I'd be incredibly sorry. Look, if, there is, if there's anything I can do. If there's anything I can do in terms of listening or, or, you know, if you want to talk, I'm sure she has a support network and all that. But uh, I certainly did offer her uh, any support that I could. I mean, what an unbelievably horrifying thing to experience. And, you know, for those of you who aren't parents, which is an annoying thing to say, and I, I understand that the moment that I say it. But for, the, for those of you who aren't parents, I think it's important to understand that when – I mean, you spend a lot of time being afraid as a parent. It's just natural if you have, you know, uh, an open-hearted and tender concern, of course, for your child's welfare. At least once or twice a day, these scenarios <laughs> go through my head about how my daughter could get injured or bad things that could happen to her or whatever. And uh, I've learned to not interfere with her because actually I, she ends up falling or whatever when I say, hey, don't, right? She turns and says, hey, what? You know, so I, you know, she's good at managing her own safety now and she does a great job with it. But you spend so much time worrying about bad things that can occur for your children. Add on that, you know, the libertarian voluntarist knowledge of where society is heading and what is going to happen to uh, the finances, to the job opportunities, to the currency, to the power of the state. And you have, you know, a recipe for, well not a tiny amount of tossing and turning. And I'm certainly trying to do what I can to make the world a better place for my daughter and for your son and your daughter uh, and uh, all of the generations to come. That's certainly my goal. And with your support, I mean, I think we're doing a damn fine job, certainly better than I anticipated. And that speaks, I think, to the quality of the listeners, of the donors. 
and of people who come across, who are open-minded enough, who come across new information, who are willing to give it a chance, give it a try. And this poor mother, I mean, she took her child to the doctor. She took her child to the dentist. She took care of him. She stayed up with him when he was sick. She made sure he ate his vegetables. And then he ended up gutted like a fish on a linoleum floor because of a rank evil stalking the hallways, the origins of which are a truly black-hearted mystery. And uh, I just... It, it, I mean, her life is now forever changed. She will never laugh in the same way again. She will never feel lighthearted in the same way again. It is, um, it is horrifying what can happen to your children in the world. And all that we can do to reduce violence in our society must be our very first and highest priority. We take our children to the dentist. We should make sure that the children around them are being treated well as well, because that is a dangerous, dangerous virus as well. So I'm sorry to start with um, such a grim topic, but it is, I think, important to understand that we are engaged in the essential reclamation of the human heart in this conversation. And it is really out of a love for the future that we act against the darkness of the present. So uh, with that being said, I wish the very best to this um, lady. And again, if there's anything that I can do to help uh, anyone involved in this tragic situation, I am uh, all ears. It doesn't have to be a show. It doesn't have to be a public conversation. It doesn't have to be recorded. It can be anything that people want to talk about. Um, I'm a good listener. So, Mike, who do we have first? All right. Up first today is Ryan. Uh, Ryan wrote in and said, I really struggle to stay focused on long-term goals but usually end up feeling overwhelmed. I recently realized that I'm still subconsciously looking for someone to tell me what I should do. How do I overcome the fear that I may set upon a path that leads to regret? <laughs> Great question. Great question. Hey, Steph. How's it going today? It's going well. It's going well. So Good. do you have a particular do, – do you want to talk about a particular project or do you want to talk in more general terms? I guess we'll start generally because, I mean, as far as the particular project, there are certainly many. Um, Long-term goals change pretty frequently. And the short-term goals that I know I really want to accomplish, sometimes I feel I'm, I'm putting off, even though I know it's important to me and I want to get it done. Um, so yeah, kind of lack of, I don't want to say motivation because it depends on what it is, but I do find myself diverting quite a bit. For instance, like the other day, I was sitting down looking at my bookshelf and noticed wow, I've read every single one of these books, but I haven't finished one of them. So it's kind of like this idea where I'll really get started on stuff, but I have difficulty staying on path to finish, and I can apply that to the long-term goal as well. Does that make sense? Right, right, okay. But now, so you're talking more about books and so on. I mean, maybe the books suck, right? That, that's true. <laughs> that is a good point. That is a very good could point. Could be. <laughs> yes, it could. Right. Are there any bigger projects that you'd like to get into in more detail? Again, I'm happy to talk about general principles, but uh, you know, I, don't, I want to make sure we can apply it to something specific if that's a value. Okay, absolutely. So I guess maybe the, the best thing would be to hone in on exactly what I'm trying to do. So long term, I know 
what I enjoy. And obviously what I enjoy isn't the most important thing. I enjoy playing Xbox. That's not that beneficial. But I um, I work part-time as a personal trainer and I, I go to clients' houses and I work with them and I work with an older population. It's very rewarding and I get a lot from it and as do they. So that's something I enjoy. And I know long-term I want to incorporate my passion for psychology, my passion for fitness and really help people because I believe it's super empowering to do that. Um, but right now, like I mentioned, it's a part-time gig because I'm working full-time as something that's paying the bills, but not necessarily something I enjoy too much or aiding me. Um, so that's where I'm at currently. What happened when you were a child and you had plans or goals that you wanted to achieve? The childhood. I think this is a great point, <laughs> a great place to start. So. I don't really ever remember communicating what it was that I wanted to do to anybody in my family. Which means you did at some point and got a negative response, right? Yeah, or it wasn't listened to or there was no feedback at all. But yeah, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm sure I had plenty of goals. I mean, I can think of a few of things I wanted to do as a child, but not received either well or at all. Right. Yeah, and I mean, not to make this about me, but, you know, to give my mother credit where credit is due, she did take aspirations seriously. Like, I was very rarely laughed at or poo-pooed. You know, I said, I want to write a novel, right, when I was uh, 11. And I started to write a novel called By the Light of an Alien Sun about a guy in a space station and his love for the woman he was stationed with. And, I mean, it was fun to write. And uh, she took that, you know... She took that seriously. When I wanted to write poetry, when I wanted to go to theater school, when I wanted to act. These were all things that she accepted as, uh, okay, you know, that's something to do and, and all that. So, I mean, the, that's not inconsequential in what I'm sort of able to achieve. I, I don't believe that I was ever mocked for ambition um, as, as a child. And... Uh, do you have any memories of uh, – you, you said you didn't tell them tell it to anyone, and I sort of said that you must have at some point so that you decided not to because of neg – do you remember any negative responses to ambition? No, um, I, I truly do not, and it, I, I don't want to divert too much, but it's just funny you ask, you know, do I remember these certain things? I've been recently really trying to hash this kind of stuff out and what I do remember from my childhood. and. Between myself and my younger sister, she's younger by four years, we both realized we don't have many memories, barring a couple, before we were about 13, 14, when things drastically changed in our household. So uh, up until then, it's like I don't really remember too much of interaction with my parents at all. Obviously, they were there, but not enough to be really a positive influence in any way, shape, or form. And what was the structure of your parents' time with you? Did they both work? Did you have a stay-at-home parent? What? Uh, how did that look? So they both worked um, when I was they were they were young. Not that's an excuse, but they were 22 when they had me, and we lived at my grandmother's house, who was my mother's mom. Um, she was my primary care provider, as my parents both worked, and my grandmother did, did not work, so I was with her most of the time. Then they got pregnant with my younger sister four years later moved out and my grandmother got a house like, I don't know, maybe a street away from us and continued to still be the primary care provider as I was growing up. Uh, my dad worked about 60 hours a week and my mom about 40. Why did they work if they were able to live, I guess, rent-free at your grandmother's house? Uh, um, well, 
they had no <laughs> clue how to manage money, I guess, because I know I didn't realize this until later in life that my dad made like really good money and uh, for kind of where he ended up, it's pretty shocking. And they just would spend and buy things like we'd have Christmases where it'd be so you couldn't even walk in the living room and there'd be gifts that wouldn't even be opened a whole year because they bought so much crap. But meanwhile, like time for college and it's like, oh, I hope you can figure it out like that, that kind of approach to, to finances. Yeah, you know, family finances, I find I find everyone's finances really fascinating. <laughs> I really do. And I remember when I was um, working up north doing gold panning and so on, I can't remember why, but for some reason I got to thinking about a time when uh, I was working and my brother was working and so on, and, and we were living with my mom, and I remember thinking like, wait a minute, my brother was making this, I was making this. Where the hell did all the money go? And I actually got a whole bunch of bank statements from back then and tried to sort of figure it out. Where did all the money go? And I never could really figure it out. I mean, there'd be like three withdrawals of $50 on a particular day from the bank machine, which is, you know, this is back when 50 bucks was like, I don't know, $250 now or something like that. Uh-huh. And it's like, who the hell needed $750 or $600 of cash in the day? Like, what the hell? Were we running a gambling ring? Were we, you know, running a cash-based prostitution business out of the house that I wasn't aware of? And I just, I never, I never figured it out. And it was uh, a huge mystery, you know, which is massive amounts of money coming in. And lots of people, right? The massive amounts of money coming in or reasonable money coming in. And it's like they just set fire to it somewhere and it just it just kind of slips through their fingers and vanishes oh, <laughs> and insane. yeah it's 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 the same thing right so i mean this is a tragedy spending all this money to buy you guys presents that don't even get open the whole year but what you want is not presents but they're presents right it's not <laughs> exactly. TS, but ce exactly right? exactly it's very you know good point and then that that's kind of a good summary of just their overall approach. It's just extremely short term. Like I buy you uh, the Power Ranger toy. You're going to have a lot of fun right now. I'm not thinking about when you're going to want I don't, like basic things or necessary things or how I'm going to make my life easier in the future. Hey, if we don't buy half as much as that stuff, put it aside. We might have a little chunk when our kids want to, you know, continue their education or whatever happens. No, to no, no. That's, that's so. I mean, that's true, but that's not what I'm talking about. What so I'm you, talking you mean about like being is, there. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, so you being, mean being there. Yeah, I got being you. There. I being you. there, which is obviously more important <laughs> than anything, we should probably well, talk more about You know, about first that. couple of years, right? First couple of years, did you want shit under a tree, or did you want a mom to smile with you and play with you and listen to you and teach you stuff and have fun with you? I mean, that's what you want, right? Of course, of course, absolutely, right. absolutely. Well, I'll tell you the secret. If you like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm ask, ask the universe with big boobs, and the universe will provide. Um, <laughs> but no, this is uh, this is the great secret to overcoming the effects of childhood. This is the great secret. See, I've waited till show twenty eight hundred and change or whatever the hell we're at, you know, because I'm a coy bastard, right? <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's not the Men in Black flash device that makes me forget the whole thing, is it? Oh, no, you've got that. You, you actually oh, need yeah. the opposite of that. You need some more remembering <laughs> okay. and a little bit less forgetting. Of course, but, um, of course. And I'm going to speak in absolutes here because, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, there may be a few people who fall out of a 14-story building and walk away from it, but it's still not, you know. <laughs> no, I, you don't say that to people. Say, well, you know, I don't say to my daughter, listen, uh, don't don't run across the highway, even though there probably have been some kids who run across the highway and are okay. I just don't tell her that, right? It's, it's a bad idea. I won't say, well, it's a bad idea for most kids, but I'm sure a few kids survive. It's just a bad idea, right? So here's my here's my absolutes. So the way to escape the effects of childhood trauma, the way to escape the effects of childhood criticism, the way to escape the effects of childhood dysfunction is one simple sentence. Are you ready? I am ready. Are you sure? Life-changing yes, moment. I'm ready. Sky-splitting lightning bolt of insight about to rend your skull in two. Are you ready? I'll sit. I'll sit. Okay. Let me know when you've uh, let's, let's do when it. you're seated. Do you need to hold your head? Like uh, in? <laughs> I don't believe so. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. So the secret to overcoming negative childhood interactions is this. Everyone around you when you were a child was intergalactically full of shit. That definitely resonates. All right. I will turn it over to you. Um... No, I mean, it, it definitely, definitely resonates. I, the first thing that I think about is my dad, when you say that, um, just because, I mean, that's his whole life is just bullshitting. I feel like he's just always been the person to promise and tell you and, and everything he's going to do and never follow through. And it works for him because he's a charismatic, good-looking guy, so it works for him, you know, out there in the world. But when your kids are at home waiting for you to show up or to follow through with that promise and you never come through... That's uh, it's pretty disappointing. So that's the first thing that comes to mind when you when you say that. Right. Um, not to mention they like, didn't know they didn't know when to have a kid, right? No, uh, no, obviously not. They're twenty two, right? Yeah. yeah. And they both need to work full time, although they have free room, and probably bored from your grandmother, right? Exactly. They don't know when had they don't know when to have a kid. They don't know what their children want. Did they ever ask you? Did they sit you down and say, listen, son, <laughs> you have a choice. Your mother can go to work for 40 hours a week plus commute plus getting ready for work. That's like 50, 55 hours a week. But in return, we'll give you a bunch of shit that you're not even going to bother to open up after Christmas. Right? <laughs> so you would say- you like <laughs> – would you like your mom to be home with you and take care of you and love you and play with you? Or would you like a bunch of shit that you don't even open? When you say it like that, it's, I mean, obviously I know it, but it just sounds so ridiculous. It is literally insane. Is... Like I'm really trying to point out just how intergalactically full of shit everyone was around you when you were a kid. That's, I mean, it's so well put. And it's so, you see, you're right. It's so simple, but it, it's so well put. I mean, we can delve into it and it gets significantly worse, but I mean, you're right. You're 100% right. Well, because people say, well, I'd do anything for my kids. And my question is always, well, did you ask them what they want? <laughs> yeah. 
Good luck. I'd do anything for my customers. Oh, he has a customer who wants to tell you what he wants. Kick him out. Shut him up. <laughs> Get rid of him. He's going to interfere with me pleasing customers. If he actually tells me what customers want, that's going to put a whole wrench in the plans of me pleasing customers. Get rid of the guy. Throw him through the trap door. Catapult him through the skylight. Chloroform him. Throw him in the trunk of a car driven by Luca Brazzi. <laughs> Get him out of here. Right? <laughs> yeah, I laugh, but I feel like I'm that customer. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the public school teachers, did they know anything about anything not really oh absolutely not no that was that was just as terrible of an experience yeah i mean those people don't i mean they keep changing the curriculum you know mm-hmm. just as a, little, as a little as a little sorry to interrupt yeah. as a little aside just to kind of validate your point of of uh, elementary school i had this uh crazy kid that used to kind of well i can't say kind of bully me psychologically phone calls and the seventh grade made a death threat to me. His friend was going to hold a shotgun. And obviously this is a big problem, but the teacher that when this all started was my sixth grade teacher. And this kid was giving me a hard time in class. And I kind of yelled at the kid so he would stop and to get the teacher's attention, he paid no mind to it. Um, this same teacher at one point in the school year was uh, taken away by the ambulance because he passed out drunk. So this is the kind of people that you're, you know, like you get sent away to to be uh, your supervisor, so to speak, and to, you know, cultivate kids in a supposed good environment. It's just it's pathetic and embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, the teachers I all had seemed to have one singular mission to use the stun gun of infinite boredom to keep the children in line. Like we can't act up if we're in another dimension out of boredom. So that's why the teachers are just so unbelievably dull and pedantic and mm-hmm. inconsequential and boring. It's funny how education can be boring, though. I mean, who doesn't get excited about learning stuff? But they figured out a way to make it the most annoying process. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, look at this goddamn show. Most ridiculous thing on the planet. I don't grant any degrees. <laughs> Your life will become enormously more difficult. <laughs> right? Your spouse may leave you. You may have to apologize to your children. Like, I was in Detroit doing a speech, uh, talked about circumcision. Guy comes up to me. This black lawyer guy, huge. He's like, you know, I uh, I wonder if you're right about that circumcision stuff because uh, I just told my son to get his kids circumcised and now I'm thinking like, holy crap. Maybe I've just, like, I mean, hey, welcome to philosophy. Massive dumps, dinosaur dumps of regret on every omelet in the future you get to eat. Absolutely, absolutely. And people are thirsting for this stuff. You know, shit, this year we might pass 100 million downloads. No degree makes your life really bad for quite a while. And people can't get enough of it. Crazy masochistic bastards, you all. Of course, but I mean, the people that listen to your show recognize the short-term discomfort for that long-term gain, and that's where everybody needs to get to. Yeah, I mean, you talk about personal training. It's like, Freedom Main Radio, we're a personal trainer. We will come to your house and poke you in the eye and disappear <laughs> into the night. 
<laughs> and then we're going to take a slow pee into your cornflakes every morning and then disappear into the morning mist. <laughs> I think I have a new marketing pitch. <laughs> this is why oh, Steph yeah. does not write the advertising copy. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> well, no, this is why we don't have advertising copy because I'm not allowed to write it, but you're also not allowed to lie. So we have none. <laughs> Because, right? Sunshine. No, tell me, don't you think, Mike? It's like, (laughs) hey, I'm going to disrupt your capacity to earn a living. I'm going to disrupt your relationship with just about everyone in your life. I'm going to make it all horrible, and it's going to cost you bandwidth to download. Are you in? Yes. (laughs) Say, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, I'm in. (laughs) And it's crazy, but this is, right, so this is the hardest stuff for people. It's the most disruptive stuff for people. It costs people. And people can't get enough of it. Now, if I can sell knowledge with this kind of blood price, when I'm not even really selling, but if I can get hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people fascinated by philosophy and downing it by the unwise quart per minute drink from the fire hose until your ass explodes (laughs) scenario, well... Anyway, but you can see this, you know, if you ever have a, a day to kill, right? You can run through speeches at conferences, and you can try and figure out who's the free market speaker and who is the non-free market speaker, right? Who's the academic? Who's the lawyer? Who's, whereas who are the people who are actually making their living from speaking? And you can see that. So to make knowledge boring is, uh, is not... Uh, I mean, it's a special kind of talent for stonewalled inertia. And, you know, kids are so hungry and thirsty for knowledge uh, that it's uh, really quite astounding. I mean, so uh, anyway, so, so the whole point about your childhood is that everyone in your childhood was intergalactically full of shit, which means everything they taught you was wrong. And it wasn't the worst kind of wrong. Sorry, it wasn't sorry, it wasn't even the normal kind of wrong. It was in fact the worst kind of wrong. The normal kind of wrong is, oh, you should go down this road to get to the gas station. You go down that road for a mile or two and you're like, shit, no gas station, guess we'll turn around, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a special kind of wrong where you don't even know that it's wrong. It's like the gas station will be there, just keep going, and you never have a point of reference to say it's time to turn around. Does that make sense? No, like you know, it's 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 such a cunning illusion, such a cunning matrix. You go down there, right? You fill up your gas, you drive out with your GPS, and you end up on the fucking moon with no gas. <laughs> it's like, how the hell did that happen? Well, yeah. the whole thing was a cunning illusion, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing was cunningly rendered, right? Quad core SLI, <laughs> right? All matrix based. You don't even know that you're wrong. Yeah. And so, you know, with religious, religion and, and government schools and uh, various kinds of indoctrination, nationalism and all that kind of crap. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, they're so incredibly full of shit. I mean, they're not even honest enough to teach you about the national debt. You know, my daughter is $20,000 in debt just for this goddamn province that I live in. It's five times the debt per capita of California. That's insane. Yeah, she's – hey, honey <laughs> – I'd like to send you to school. I'm sure they're going to say, this is what they're going to say to her at school, first day. I'm not saying she's going to school, but if we send her to school, this is what they say first day. They'd say, hey, kids, great to have you here. This is government school. Great to have you here. Wanted to mention a couple of things. Number one, please don't hit each other. Uh, that's for the union thugs uh, to do to make sure that we get benefits and summers off. Uh, B, this is ridiculously inconvenient. Um, generally, the school starts after your parents have to be at work and ends before 
they leave work, but uh, screw you. I like afternoons with a mint julep on the porch, looking out at the back 40, looking at the taxpayers toiling in the fields like whales diving up and down through <laughs> waves of wheat uh, to give me my uh, benefits and, uh, and pay. Uh, number three, um, we're going to try and come off as some kind of authority for you, but the reality is that we are so screwed up financially that you all are $20,000 in debt just for this province. A good portion of that is because I'm a greedy son of a bitch who wants more pay, uh, less work, and more benefits all the time. So we've really screwed you, and we sold off your future. So it's $20,000 now. You guys are four or five. By the time you get to be, like, working age, it's going to be like $100,000 that you're going to be in the hole because we're greedy, entitled bastards who really don't want to compete and work for a living. So with that having been said, let me now position myself as your moral authority and tell you how you should live because I'm so wise and virtuous, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's sick. It really, it's really sickening. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's completely, it's, people being irresponsible, people being self-absorbed, everyone not thinking about, oh, my decisions actually affect others. It's just, how do I feel right now in the moment? Good, okay, keep going, keep doing it. It's pathetic. Right, so, yeah, I mean, so it's not just your parents or your teachers directly. I mean, the whole goddamn society that we live in is a massive exercise in immediate greed. Fuck the children. Fuck the future. Fuck the consequences. Right? I want money to bribe my constituents with right now. So I'm going to print and borrow and tax. Right? The rich are fewer, so let's fuck them to feed the majority. Yep. I mean, it's uh, the whole society we live in is a massive exercise in watching a three-year-old in a candy store, and he also has brain damage and, of course, soon diabetes, right? <laughs> Our entire society is a three-year-old in a candy store that gets really upset when real three-year-olds seem to have no capacity to defer gratification. embarrassing that's that's the best i can say it's absolutely right so so the great liberation of all of this right the great liberation that comes from all of this is that nothing anyone said to you as a child was anything other than exquisite bullshit yeah, right. I, I mean, now once like you worse. see that yeah once you see that you get what philosophy offers you is horror and freedom horror and freedom. That's the twin poles of philosophy. I recognize that. Definitely I recognize that. Like, so. holy shit. It's true. I live in a fucking madhouse. <laughs> like, this world is full of insane people, hypocritical people, evil people. People so full, full of shit that I can't believe everyone's eyes aren't brown. Who are lecturing me on moral responsibility and the deferral of gratification. And so that's the horror that philosophy provides you. Right? It's not like the lunatics have taken over the asylum. It's that there's nothing but an asylum. And, you, you know, you, when you bring basic rational arguments to people about spanking or taxation or whatever it is, national debt being horrible and unjust, problems of democracy, uh, you know, the, the realities of female uh, child abuse and female relationship abuse. I mean, it, <laughs> people are just so like, incredibly full of shit. No, absolutely. They, just... they don't. 
Yeah, and they, they cover it all up, and they right. So, so this is the horror of the asylum that we live in, that is so widespread that everyone thinks it's normal. Now, so you see, oh my God, I live in an asylum. And then you wander the halls and scrabble through the ductwork like Ripley, <laughs> trying to figure out whether you can find anybody else who knows that it's an asylum, and then you hold them fast to your heart as best you can. But so that's the horror. That's the horror. Now, the freedom is you got it when I first said it. What's the freedom? Yeah. Wait, did you ask me what's the freedom? I'm sorry. Yeah, what's the freedom that comes from that? The freedom is that I recognize all these people are insane. I don't need to be around them, and I can stay with the people who I find actually get the bigger picture, who have clear view. You know, it's liberating. to just You have to recognize it. You can't just – if you identify, you normalize, you continue to do it and assume this is what's right – you're perpetually going to be stuck in that asylum not realizing where you are. That's all true, but I'm talking about the stuff in your head because what you talked about was not problems in your relationship outside but the problems you had with your relationship in your head, right? Mm-hmm. Like about getting things done. Everyone, Everything that everyone told you about how to get shit done is insane. Yeah. Like th- what they said is insane and they themselves are insane. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, people, people, I get these letters like, man, how do you survive all this criticism that you get? It's like, well, if I was an artist and there was a truck by, flying by the highway with monkeys throwing poo at stuff and one of those pieces of poo happened to hit my canvas, I wouldn't say, oh, shit, that must mean I'm a terrible artist. <laughs> no, Monkey like poo throwing, that's all that people are doing. They don't have any clue what they're doing. They have no principles. All people are doing is trying to seek advantage of you by getting over you by getting you to self-attack. That's all people are doing. They're pushing this button and saying, ooh, does this push self-attack? Does this push self-attack? Does this push self-attack? It's like, it's pathetic. This is why nobody calls in to really have a go at me, usually. I mean, occasionally people do if they don't know, right? <laughs> that they go in and I'm like, ooh, look, another monkey poo thrower. <laughs> I can't take it personally. To take it personally would be an insult to monkey feces, which at least can fertilize something, right? Oh, absolutely. I listened to so, uh, one of your talks. Yeah, uh, I listened to one of your talks on accepting criticism. It, it was really well done. Obviously, so is everything you do. But um, I, you made a very good point in, in which it was. It comes from a place of empathy, where you know people need to understand what it is you're trying to do and get what your goals are before they can issue any type of criticism. And uh, it really spoke to me because I've experienced that. Like luckily now in my life, I like I have a very supportive girlfriend and a really great best friend, and he recently um, was able to kind of write me a letter in an exchange that was very critical of what I was attempting to do, but it was like the most powerful thing I've ever read because it came from a place of concern. Like, hey, I really care about you. I don't want to see you make a mistake. This is my problem with all of that that you said. Here you go. Have at it. And it was like, wow, this is really critical, but I'm enjoying reading it. I've never seen that in my life before. It was always just like a, an insult or like, beautiful. That's, you know, it was, oh, it was wonderful. that guy with a death grip. Oh, I do. <laughs> I, I but that. not around the neck. I remember this with Mike. I remember this with the interview with Mike when we first talked about working together. I grappled him uh, with like, a, well, first of all, it was thighs. Uh, and then he said, uh, too Higher. close. I want to be close. This is too close. <laughs> Right. So hold on to him with the death grip. Neither nuts nor neck would be my suggestion from a moral and legal standpoint. We'll go with the bear hug then. Yeah, that's good. If you- no, like, okay, l- let me give you a tiny example here, right? I was just thinking of this today. So there's a thread going on on the message board about, you know, when I talk about the status, uh, once status understand that the government is evil, then they're supporting evil, right? Like if somebody makes a moral argument, you either have to rebut it or accept it. You can't, you can't just wish it away, you know? 
um, you know, when they said, Steph, you have cancer. Well, I could choose to get treatment, treatment or choose not to get treatment, but I couldn't choose to not have cancer, right? <laughs> I just wish it away, right? Make my choices there. I can listen to the internet and put coffee grounds up my ass and then assume I'm going to be all better, or I can go with what science says. Anyway, so I talk about, you know, statism, uh, the, the belief in the initiation of force against people, peaceful people who are following their conscience, right? And people get... <laughs> It's not funny, but but it kind of is. You'll see how funny it is in a sec. So people get upset with me, like when I say, "Well, if if this, if your philosophy or if philosophy defines this as evil, I'm just going to say your philosophy." I know I have problems with that, but let me just, for the sake of convenience, for the moment. Mm -hmm. So someone comes up to me and says, "My philosophy defines Bob as evil," right? And I said, "Well, you you know, you shouldn't really hang around with evil people, right?" And then they say, you're trying to separate me from Bob. (laughs) It's like, that's completely insane. It's your philosophy that defines him as evil. You know, (laughs) racists are evil. Bob is in the KKK and he enthusiastically supports the KKK. And I think racism is stone evil. It's like, well, then you probably shouldn't hang around with Bob. (gasps) You cult leader, you're trying to separate me from Bob. It's like, actually, I'm just listening to the shit that you're saying and reflecting it back to you in a true manner. I just think it's so funny. I mean, libertarians define the state as evil, and they say, well, boy, support of the state is what allows it to function, and I sort of point... (laughs) Oh, boy. Are you still there? What happened to Steph? I think we lost him. Skype is trying to separate us from Steph. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just tell him uh, we'll get him back. All right. Thanks, Mike. But I also wanted to say, Ryan, I mean, it's great that you have your girlfriend, and it's fantastic that you have you know, the, the friend that gave you that kind of feedback. I mean, seriously, hold on to people like that with the death grip. People that will actually give you critical feedback with your best interests in mind are so incredibly rare. And if you want to do big stuff, if you want to do cool stuff, if you want to do important stuff, it's so essential to have a support system around you. Oh, uh, absolutely. I don't mean to interrupt. I just want to say like my perspective on it because I have been around so many shitty people throughout my life. And the people I actually called friends, I'm embarrassed to now use that word with the people I associate Mm -hmm. with now. And it's like to really have a shared experience, someone you really love and people that really love you back and you care about. It's when you finally taste it. It's like, you know, I eat shit food my entire life thinking it was great. And I finally taste good quality food. It's like, how the hell did I eat that for my whole life? You know, so I recognize the importance and how rare it really is. But I do um, appreciate those words of encouragement. I will take that to heart and make sure I keep those people around for sure. All right, where did we drop off there? Skype was trying to separate you from us, Steph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, this is, this is literally how insane people are. Right, so some Jewish guy comes up to me and says, anti-Semites are responsible for all the evil in the world. And it's like, here's a friend of mine, he's a Nazi. And I'm like, well, how can he be a friend of yours if he's a Nazi who you define as evil, responsible for all the evils in the world? Maybe you shouldn't, you know, you should revisit that relationship, right? And he's like, oh, you trying to separate me from Bob the Nazi. And it's like, no, I'm simply pointing out that your philosophy is defining him as evil. And people, like, I point out this obvious fact, and people get all upset with me, like, I'm, I'm trying to break up relationships. <laughs> I really want to live. This poison will kill me. 
hey, maybe you shouldn't eat that poison. <gasps> you trying to separate me from this poison. It's like, well, no, you said that you wanted to live. And, ah, right? I mean, what a, what a bizarre trap that is. I mean, <laughs> it's, I don't know if you get just how completely insane this is. No, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely it stupid. Is, it's like, stupid. Oh, st- he's going around breaking up families. It's like... <laughs> You're defining these people as immoral, deeply immoral, supporting the greatest immorality in the world, and then you want to have a barbecue with them. Okay. Well, then you have to do one of two things. Stop having barbecues with them or stop defining them as evil. Or just live your life being a hypocrite, which I don't know how people get away yeah, with. Or, or yeah, <laughs> or say when it comes to libertarianism, I'm a dilettante. I'm a tourist. I just play with the ideas. I like reading diet books because the pictures of the food look pretty, but I have no intention of changing my behavior in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to cast around these big fiery spells of good and evil, but nothing's going to change anything that I do. I'm like, okay, fine. That's a huge relief. Then shut up about your adherence to libertarianism or philosophy or virtue and just say that you're a bullshitter. That's fine. Then at least you're not discrediting the ideas with all your bullshit and hypocrisy. (sighs) Boy. And while you dropped off there, Steph, we were talking about uh, support systems and having those kind of people around you, people that are, have an own, their own inner war going on with their own beliefs versus their behavior and actions. Having those people around you when you're trying to do big stuff, important stuff, challenging stuff. Oh, my God. It's such a drain. It's such a drain. I mean, those type of people, I don't think you're going to be getting the, the critical feedback supportive letter from those kind of people. You're not going to be getting or, the letter going, I'm not sure what you're doing right now if it's in your best interest because they're too busy managing their own inner hell. If they even read the letter or if they listen to your idea of what you're even trying to do. You that know? too. Or, you know, if people are really concerned about families being broken up, um, anyone who supports the war on drugs is breaking up hundreds of thousands of families every single year by getting innocent, peaceful people thrown in jail for years. For years, anybody who supports the current version of what's laughably called national defense, which is international offense, is getting families broken up, both by the police being shipped overseas. And this is true of some women whose kids got born two months ago. They're shipped over to um, Afghanistan or wherever. So there are hundreds of thousands of families broken up by the military and hundreds of families, hundreds of thousands of families in Iraq and Afghanistan physically fucking disassembled by this foreign policy. Families are broken up by public schools because people have to work extra hard to pay taxes for these shitty institutions. What was the divorce rate stuff at the conference in Detroit? We were talking about the divorce rate amongst active soldiers when they come back home. It's just Oh, yeah, it was insane. Now, this was his sort of personal experience, but it was mental, right? It's mental. Yeah. So then anybody who supports the state is supporting and enthusiastically praising and is, is cheering and waving the flag of an institution that physically destroys hundreds of thousands of families every year. This doesn't even count the god-awful family court system that further disrupts, destroys, and smashes up families. So the alimony and child support system that literally rewards the 70% of marriages broken up by women. And so the funny thing is, is that somehow I'm considered responsible for the breakup of families when I'm merely reflecting back the logical consequences of the evil bombs that people are throwing around, which I happen to agree with. 
but they're the ones who say, right, that uh, these people are stony evil. And I'm like, well, you can't really hang out with evil if you're a good person, right? Oh, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm talking about you actually doing a goddamn thing to live by the values that you're so loudly thumping yourself on the chest and proclaiming yourself to be an adherent of. Oh, I can't believe it. What would you say? How are you breaking up? Right? And, and the funny thing is, too, is that statists break up infinitely more families than philosophy. Statism and status are responsible for the physical destruction and moral and emotional destruction of millions of families worldwide every year. Every year. Right? And then does anybody sit there and say, well, you know, the state is really bad at breaking up families. And the state does it by force. Philosophy doesn't do it by force. Right? Philosophy says, here's the argument for good versus evil. And you want to be a good person? Then you accept or you refute, motherfucker. Accept or refute. Accept the argument or refute the argument. Those are your only two choices. Because to ignore the argument is to accept the argument. Right? If I ignore that I've been told that I have cancer, I'm accepting that I have cancer. Right? <laughs> because it's not going anywhere just because I ignore it. If I'm standing on a train track and the train's coming, and someone says, Steph, get off the train track, the train's coming, and I ignore them, I'm accepting the train. Because <laughs> we all know what's going to happen next, right? And so it's accept or refute. Accept or refute. That's the choice. Everybody's that, desperate to avoid those choices. Sorry, go ahead. That requires you to think, and a lot of people don't like to think for some insane reason. And just uh, you, you talk about you know putting yourself in uncomfortable situations and thinking about this stuff and taking the evidence, and you have a choice. You either, like you said, accept or refute, and that requires you to delve in a little bit, maybe do your research. And a, a relatable example to this is my younger sister uh, had a baby back in, in January, and around November or so at Thanksgiving, or right before, I shared your circumcision video with her and her boyfriend. And uh, I, at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, which I will know that's the last uh, holiday that I attended, but I said, hey, did you get a chance to watch that video? And um, she said, yeah, but I turned it off halfway through. I just really had trouble watching it. And I, to me, that, oh, that says everything. Did that's she everything. have trouble watching the mutilation of little boys? Yes, obviously, obviously. Like, and then what did she do? Of course she did it, but it gets worse. Oh. So like she, she's, um, oh, man. She, Are you it, kidding me? Wait, wait. Worse, we so. have to pause. Oh. We have to pause just for a moment. I really feel that Mike is having like a philosophy gasm here. So, Mike, I will let you uh. take this one. It's sick. Go ahead, Mike. And I'll finish, but go ahead. Oh, it's too hard for me to watch, but I'll just inflict that on my child. Right? Like the, oh. the, the disconnect or the cognitive dissonance in that. To I can't like, watch the I, knife actually oh, remove yeah. the foreskin with the nerve endings and all that. I can't watch that. I'll let my baby, my infant, experience that. Oh, oh, oh my but, God. But to, just to add to it. At, when I did bring this up at, at, the, at the dinner table, obviously plenty of time to go against the decision, but baby's not born yet. Um, I said, hey, did you watch that? My mother was curious. Hey, what are you guys talking about? I told her. And then she said, oh, no, they're getting it done. My grandmother jumped out my throat. Oh, they're getting it done. And then my stepdad's mom, same thing. Notice all females jumped down at my throat and attacked me. My mom said, oh, what video is that? Oh, you think Stefan's God, blah, 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 blah. And so no, nobody had any evidence. Nobody had an argument. Everyone just said, oh, it's not what I know already, so it can't be right. No, you see, no, hang on, no, no. See, that, 
the argument that that I'm God would be pretty refutable because if I were God, then there would be like lightning bolts going through their spines while they stood in the middle of a house. So, um, you know, for self-defense against the poor boys, um, soon to be mutilated genitalia. So, yeah, that's a fairly refutable position. Yeah, that's a very good point. But that that's just the kind of, I mean, just to talk about what you're saying. I mean, this is the kind of environment that I was exposed to, for one. But secondly, it applies on a grander scale of these people that just don't want to think about things that make them feel uncomfortable. But it's like that should tell yeah, you everything so, you so need to the know. Women, like, and I'm, I assume that they're all pro-choice, right? So that they, they want to make sure that nobody tells a woman what to do with a fetus in her body that she pretty much chose unless she was raped to, to have in her body – my body, my choice, right? I'm not but sure what they're saying. A boy's body, a boy's body is my choice too. Like, what the fuck? My body, my choice. Why? Why doesn't that apply to the infant boy? Can't tell you. Just that makes sick. me uncomfortable. Well, it's sadism. It's just sadism. It's the assertion of generally female power over men, right? It's the branding. Uh, we we bitches own you, right? I mean, it's what farmers do to their cows. They brand them, they cut them, so that they know who owns them, right? Because, because patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, so sort of to return to the point, right? So people who criticize me, hey, there's some people who do a great job. And I learn from them, and I listen to them, and fantastic, right? Mike gives me feedback. People give me feedback. It's great. Listeners give me feedback. But because I am a rational and empirical human being, I recognize that just about everybody is intergalactically full of shit. And so the voices in your head, right, the people who you grew up with, they're just shit fountains. They're just the fountains of idiotic, monkey-poo-throwing, defensive, hypocritical bullshit, I know that's not like a magic spell that makes everything better. But I do think that it's important to really understand that. That all the rules that people gave you, all the indifferences that parted people's feelings before you, like Moses striding through the Dead Sea, all of the hostilities, all the calumnies, all the insults, are spewed by people who are pretty much irredeemably full of nothing but shit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's all too obvious to me. I mean, I've had plenty of negative experiences and things that I've tried to revisit and try to hash out. And I've approached my mother um, about my stepfather who had an excessive drinking problem the whole time. He lived with us. And uh, I had said to her one day um, when I was, I don't think, I think I had just moved out at the time or maybe in the, in the time moving out. But they had some type of issue, and I, I said to her, what are you doing? I mean, this guy, it's, uh, it's been years, but it's like he drinks four to five beers a day. It's like he's clearly an alcoholic. He's not a functioning human being. And her response to me was literally, he does not drink four or five beers a day. He ma- drinks maybe three. And that was somehow enough to say, well, you're wrong because I have a different number in my head, and that completely – you know, destroys your argument. And I don't have to worry about it because three bears are okay. But if it was four or five, that'd be a problem. I'll deny that and we'll move forward. And your whole experience can just be denied. And it's, well, it's and sick. The whole po- the, but the whole point of that, right, the whole point of somebody saying something that ridiculous is to make it so exhausting to continue a conversation. 
Oh yeah. What do you, you say? You know, like that? if I if I start if I if I'm in in China and I start speaking to someone in English and then they start speaking me back in Mandarin and I don't speak Mandarin, they don't speak English. What are we going to do? Cool. Am I going to start to teach them English words and they <laughs> scratch them on the ground? Are they going to pull out a uh, you know, this is back in the day, right, before Google Translate and shit like that, yeah, right? Yeah. But am I going to really try and teach them English? Are they going to try and teach me Mandarin? Are we going to try and figure out how to communicate? No, I just roll my eyes and say, well, I guess we're not talking with this guy. Let's, right, let's go and uh, find somebody we speak the same language. So the whole point is if that kind of defensiveness is just to make you give up. I give up. <laughs> you win. I can't possibly teach you anything to do with common sense if you've reached the ripe old age of 50 without having a master shred of it, I give up, right? Exactly. It's like trying to give financial advice to a homeless person, you know? <laughs> I, I give up. Like, I mean, what you're saying to me is, is, is so clear. Yeah. So, yeah, so the next time that you, you know, want to be, do a big plan, there'll be voices in your head to say, well, you won't be able to do it or it doesn't matter or do this instead and so on. Just recognize that they come from people entirely full of shit. And, you know, if you doubt me, just look at the empirical evidence of their lives. No, that's, that speaks wonders. And my examples are always, okay, well, I don't want to be anything like these people, so let's try to do the opposite, you know, do or at least, at least not do that, you know. <laughs> and that's the best example I've ever received of all these people around me just making constant mistakes, not reflecting, not having reason for doing the things they are doing. It's just mindlessly existing and just kind of coasting through life. And, and nobody's happy, you know. Like now I have, like I said, a 19-year-old sister with a baby who's keeping the cycle going, you know. And it's just – it's so unfortunate. That's who my heart goes out to and I feel the worst for because I feel like she made a lifelong decision um, without the proper tools to even understand that type of decision. Um, yeah, so, when you get older, you can tell that kid that uh, it was his mom and his grandmom who ferociously fought to make sure that a third of his penis got hacked off shortly after birth, right? Yeah. You could just tell him the truth. And then these women who are very proud of their decision and feel that they're doing the right thing by cutting up boys' penises, even though they don't have any penises, it's really important that uh, <laughs> you know that women don't that men don't speak for women because we just don't know what it's like, you know, but of course women can speak for men's penises. They can live with that decision and they can live with the questions and all the science is going to be going up between now and then to sort that out. I'm saying that's something you can't undo, you know, and that, that's what's really unfortunate about it. I mean, just in regards to circumcision, I mean, you do it and then it obviously it is wrong, but then people become privy to that. There's no undoing that as opposed to if you didn't do it and then it comes out like, oh, you really should get it done. It's so much better for whatever reason. At least you have the option. So it's just stupid regardless. I mean, we obviously know it's evil, but it's just a stupid decision. Like, oh, this is permanent. I'm not going to think about it. Here you go. Good luck. Yeah, I mean, I think that the practice originally evolved out of a religious sect, which I can't remember the name of, but uh, it's something to do with apple juice. But it's a religious sect that looks like the other people in the region who need to make sure that their women are only mating with members of that religious sect. And so you, you give them a marker. Uh, on a sexual organ that shows that. And so, I mean, it's it's all just about basic uh, tribal branding and uh, and keeping the gene pool uh, of that tribe uh, intact and making sure that nobody fakes their way in. Um, but uh, it's I mean, it's all it's all complete nonsense. Uh, you know, the first clue should be that it was first described uh, four thousand years ago by Egyptians, and that should be kind of a hint as to whether it should be open to question or not. But uh, Mike, did you want you wanted to add something? 
Yeah, I just want to say something on the point of, you know, the people that are the first ones to reject reasoned arguments or evidence when you bring it to them about decisions that they've made in their life, they're the first people to tell you why you shouldn't do things, why it's a bad idea. I know when I was working at my jobby job and I was planning to quit to come work with Steph on Freedom Main Radio, I had, oh, every single person I knew in that building just about tell me why this was a bad idea. Oh, what is your health insurance going to be like? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm really concerned about that. What pension plan? Let's talk about that. What is, how, are you, how are you really doing? All these people that didn't really give a shit about me for, oh, I don't know, the 10 years that I worked there now were very, very concerned about what I was going to do, my future, my goals, my dreams, my hopes. What they saw was someone who was happy and who was escaping the fucking cage. Someone that was escaping the hamster wheel that they had been running on, some of them for 10 years, 20 years, some 30 years. I've heard stories from people when I was working there. You know, the guy comes in for the the college summer job type thing. Oh, he's just going to work, scrap up some money, put it together, you know, and then he'll be gone in, you know, a couple months. And then they're still there 30 years later. They got trapped in the comfort because, hey, the check keeps coming. Hey, this is kind of easy. This doesn't push my boundaries too much. It's not too uncomfortable. And they decided to stay there. Stay there, which is fine for a day, fine for a week, fine for a month, fine for a year, maybe even a couple years. But then before they know it, they wake up and they're 60 years old. They're still working at this job that they hate and they have no passion for. And they hate to see anyone make a move or make a decision to better their life and pursue their dreams and pursue something more than what they now have. Because they pissed away their opportunities. They pissed away their chance. They pissed away their opportunity to live their dreams and pursue something that they were passionate about. And now they just want to tell you why you doing what you're doing, why it's such a bad idea. Because just the fact that you have that option and you're breaking out of that cage, you're breaking out of that mold, you're escaping that hamster wheel, that just shines a spotlight right in their face at every missed opportunity that they had, everything they pissed away, all the time they wasted, and the fact that they're going to go to their grave as cowards, not having pursued their dreams, not having pursued that which they're passionate about, and they just stayed in the creature comforts of a comfortable job. A paycheck that comes reliably every single two weeks. And, uh, you know, oh, that 401k plan, that's probably not going to be worse shit when the dollar completely collapses and everything that was inside it goes <laughs> completely belly up. But, yeah, the people that want to say why you shouldn't do stuff if you're excited about a big goal or dream, be very skeptical. And as you said, look at what their life is like. Where does their credibility come from to give any kind of advice? Are they aware that they have no credibility if they have no credibility? There's nothing worse than the person with no credibility talking as if they have credibility. So, you know, if someone, someone who's pissed away their life is saying, go, go live your dreams. Don't end up like me. I'm aware. You know, I'm aware how this looks coming from me, but don't make the same mistakes I did. That's something to listen to. But if it's someone that hates their life, hates their husband, hates their wife, you know, hates their kids, hates everything about their job, walks in the door every day with a scowl on their face, hating the air that they have to breathe, uh, don't, don't take advice from that person. And like you said, you're probably better off if you just do the exact opposite of what they did. You're probably going to wind up in a far better place. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. The planet is full of just people who are like, there's a dream. Kill it. Tall poppy, cut it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tall poppy, cut it down. The hammer sticking up, nail it down. Yeah, I mean, they're just dream killers. They're just dream killers. And uh, most people, if you share something that you're passionate about, will do their very best to strangle it in its crib. I'm sorry, it's just a reality. And then you have all these movies, right? All these movies out there about basically live small. Live small. 
isn't getting drunk funny? Yeah. yeah <laughs> right? Isn't it cool to just hang around and play video games? And, Steph, but know. then a man is going to show up. Some man is going to show up and whisk you away to a life of magic and excitement and passion. Someone's just going right. to find you. Right. Right. And you're going to be right. special. God loves you because who else can handle it? <laughs> who else can stand it? Anyway, listen, Mike, let's move on to the next caller. I want to make sure we get through our queue today. God help us at least once. Uh, so, yeah, thanks very much for calling in. Great questions. I know we sort of danced around quite a bit, but hopefully it's useful. And if you do, of course, get stuck, feel free to call back in. No, I appreciate that, Stefan. Uh, thank you for taking the time. I just wanted to end by saying, like, I really do appreciate this. I thought I was coming to this call to, you know, cry about all my childhood experience and not that I don't want to make light of that. But through this call, I kind of realized, like, I am doing a great job of getting past that and, and obviously through your show and listening and applying philosophy to my life. I think that I'm ahead of where I thought I was, if that makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, and you're doing a way better job than your demon bobber sister, right? Snip, snip, snip. So uh, good yeah. for you. Keep us posted, though, if you can. Thanks, Steph. Thank you, Mike. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, up next is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote in and said, my wife said that she is considering leaving me because I renounced Christianity. We have a son, and I still want to be with her. What can I do? Yeah. Ooh. I don't know. First of all, congratulations on the exceedingly Old Testament name. Uh, that's, uh, that really sets the stage for this. Can I assume that you, of course, were raised religiously yourself? Yeah, I was actually circumcised twice. Twice? My, my mom tells a story proudly about how the first time it was just a trim job, and then we got a good Jewish doctor to do it right the second time. Right. Well, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. Uh, very sorry about that. What, what happened with your son? Do you know? Well, of course you know. What happened? Did he get circumcised? Yeah, I feel terrible. Um, um, we, we spanked him, and uh, my, my voice is breaking up. I don't know how well I'm coming. Oh, I can hear. That's, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. I mean, you, you can let your feelings flow here. This is a, uh, a feeling-friendly zone. So uh, what, what's going on for you? So um, I, I only came to philosophy after hearing you on the Joe Rogan and realized that, that I'd been doing lots of things wrong. And so I've been trying to, trying to bring my family along. My wife agrees that it's not good to hit and she she agrees that it's not good to threaten her son with eternal damnation if he disobeys so that's a really good start i think right right how old is your son almost five now as far as the religion goes uh is it is it my fault is it uh, was it was it this show? Was it something else that broke the faith fog? Uh, yeah, it's pretty much your fault. <laughs> All right, no, it's fine. I'll take that. Like I had, uh, I had intentionally avoided like atheist arguments, um, just because I I knew that I didn't want like I knew it would be disruptive, and uh, I. I remember the podcast I listened to was 10 Arguments for Freedom, and it's like your atheist arguments snuck up on me. So I was, oh. I was like trying to avoid it, and 
And yeah, but you caught me. <laughs> right. You kind of got roofied. Sorry about that. I mean, sorry that it was a surprise, but, uh, but go on. Um, so, yeah, like I've been been calling myself a moralist now and and it's got lots of conflicts in my family and so on and so forth um but i like i i i've had lots of good talks with her since in initially sending the question in to to mike um and i don't think we're in danger of divorce but i just I want to like know how to talk to her, and and why? Really, I mean, what is the um, what is the emotional driver behind the religiosity? I mean, again, it's been so long since I believed in in a deity that I have a tough time believing that people do it because it really makes a whole lot of sense to them. I assume that there's emotional drivers. I'm not saying that you know everyone's a hypocrite who believes, but uh, is there are there strong emotional drivers? Like if she were to Except atheistic arguments, what would be the immediate relational or emotional consequences for her? Her uh, family, her her mother and father, uh, are very religious and uh, like spent thirty years teaching in a Christian school and in in church. Um, right. And but she's she's sort of coming around in that the 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 pastor of that church has really treated them like shit and and her, oh you mean her parents yeah like they they she her mom has cancer and they just decided to close the school and and cut off her parents benefits Ooh. effectively without warning and and yeah, so that's that doesn't seem wildly in the charitable domain. No. So wow. I think I think that's a like a driver in in the uh, anti-religious direction, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one thing if you have the virus; it's another thing if you have actively infected others with the virus of faith. Right. So, I mean, if your wife is, you know, well, this was inflicted on me. I'm not saying that's what she believes at the moment, but if she sort of comes to that perspective, that's one thing. But if you accept the, the that faith is a harmful delusion and you have actively, I assume if they've been teaching kids for 30 years, right, hundreds or probably thousands of children have been infected with and had their faith virus fed and grown fat in blood and words, that's a really rough thing to look back on your life and say, this thing which is not true and is harmful is something that I pretty much force-fed to kids for 30 years, right? Yeah, of course. Um, because it's important to look at the cost of changing people's minds, right? I mean, most people, the only, the only principle that they know is the one that they sat in the office <laughs> in the school, right? I mean, they, they don't make decisions based on principles, it's a cost-benefit analysis. And that's sort of why I ask, what would it cost? Right, so with your wife, it would cost that her parents, who she grew up imagine, imagining, thinking that they were doing all kinds of good and saving souls and bringing people to Jesus and saving them from the devil and so on, that she, if she recognizes the falseness and therefore the harm of religiosity, then she has a very, very different relationship with her parents, right? 
Of course, and similarly, we were both in the military when we met, and and her brother, like she's got one brother who's a police officer, and and in the military also, and then another one just joined up, and I, like I tried to talk to him about morality, and 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 it just like he just wouldn't accept it. It was just like I need a job, I need to do something with my life, and. And it's it's hard for her to accept that, like basically accepting philosophy. I think is rejecting her family, like you, what you were talking about earlier in the call, with a lot of what uh, Ryan was saying. It really connects with me, also. Right, right, right. And I mean, it's obviously enormously complicated by your son. I mean, infinitely really complicated because he's an innocent party in all of this. And like, first of all, I really want to, holy crap, if I dare use a mixed metaphor, fire a cannon full of philosophy medals at your chest because, uh, wow, what a journey to make, my friend. That's astonishing, right? What an amazing journey to make from military and religious to, I guess, where you are at the moment. Uh, You said you weren't listening to the atheist talks, so I guess you were listening to some of the libertarian or a voluntarist or anarchist talks and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you don't have to talk, talk about where you are there, but I mean, even to have an open mind to listen to, to receive the arguments. I mean, that shows a keen mind and a, a very deep and uh, admirable um, capacity for integrity. And I just really wanted to express my incredibly deep admiration for your ability to process uh, arguments, your willingness to stick with difficult topics, I mean, that's remarkable. Would that there were more people such as yourself, the world would be healed a lot faster. And I just wanted to mention that up front. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. So, is your wife willing to fake it? In, in what sense? Like, I, my mom, when Well, I... be a double agent of truth and reason, right? Is your wife willing to like? Would she be willing to uh, be um, a skeptic around you and uh, more pious around her parents, so to speak? Is she willing? I, I assume you're not living with them, right? So it's not going to be twenty-four-seven, right? But uh, you know, is she willing to bow her head and say grace to keep peace with her parents, even if she's more skeptical outside of their presence? That's a good question. I like. I would feel. I've I've tried to do that myself, uh, like being respectful, and and I have a hard time with it. I haven't asked her to do that sort of thing, but but an easier time than a divorce, right? Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, I I wouldn't be suggesting this except for there's a son, right? And you know he needs his dad. Obviously, you know that, right? And uh, uh, he's an innocent party in all of this. And if your wife feels that if she accepts atheist arguments, then she must be an open atheist with her parents. Well, you know, a lot of people know they're gay a long time before they come out to their parents, right? I'm not saying they, some never do, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a reasonable metaphor. And of course, if, you're, if her mom has got cancer, and I don't know what, what her health status is or whatever, but, you know, obviously if you're, if, I'm not saying this is, but if it were the situation that her mother were like two weeks away from dying, then going in with atheism and religion is a lie and harmful and you spend your whole life doing I don't know. That just seems a little bit rough and, and 
not particularly necessary. I mean, it's not like she's going to be teaching anyone else about religion in the last two weeks, right? Right. Uh, the prognosis is is good for what it's Oh, worth. good. Okay. All the better. Yeah. So I, you know, all is permitted with honesty. This is my basic approach to things. This is why everybody keeps trying to make me into someone who's giving people rules. Like, the moment you become an atheist, you must be an atheist with everyone. Nobody must be hidden from your illumination, right? Uh, and you must expose and, you know, spray out the faith virus wherever you find it. And I just think that's crazy. I mean, philosophy is not Sergeant Major Self-Improvement who screams at you and calls you a maggot until you do 50 and heal the world of everyone who believes in religion, right? You all had enough of that, I assume, in the military, right? Indeed. Yeah, and I'd, philosophy should not become a boss. Philosophy should not be like a computer programmer that tells you what to do, like you're a computer, right? The whole point of philosophy is honesty and choice. And everything that you're honest about with yourself, I believe, is not only survivable but healthy. So if you were to say to your wife, look – you and I have a relationship even though we disagree. You and your parents can have a relationship even though you disagree. We just have to be honest about it. And so I don't want you to think that the moment that you accept atheist arguments is the moment then you become like a scud going towards the yurt hut of your parents' belief systems. I don't believe that's true, right? The acceptance of a belief is not a commandment to action. If I say I'm fat, that doesn't mean I am now programmed to diet, right? It just means I'm accepting a truth about myself. I never thought of that that way. But it is so essential to not turn philosophy into the new authority, right? Are you tired of God? Are you tired of government? Well, philosophy can be your new dictator. <laughs> well, no. No, that's not the point. And... There's not value in that. Philosophy expands choice. There's no military police, no brig, and no orders. And so if you say to your wife something like, look, let's forget about the consequences of these beliefs because there are no enforced consequences to beliefs. Right? There's no heaven and hell in philosophy, right? But there's a good and bad conscience, which mostly has to do with honesty versus self-deception. But if you can say to your wife, let us explore these ideas while rejecting any automatic consequences to this exploration. We can look at a map without planning a trip, right? We can look at the night sky without having to become an astronaut, right? We can look at a cookbook without having to become a cordon bleu chef. We can go to the bakery without having to buy every cake, right? Or even any cake, for that matter. Philosophy is about exploration with principles. The exploration is not a commandment to action. Now, this is different from religion, and it's different from the state, right? So just in traditional Christianity, if you accept that Jesus is your savior and without Jesus you go to hell, 
and the way that you worship Jesus is go to church and pay a tithe, what do you have to do? Go to church and pay a tithe. Yeah, there's consequences to this belief. And the consequences flow from the acceptance of the proposition, right? Yes. Now, this is not the case in philosophy, because there's no heaven and hell. So in philosophy, you explore ideas and arguments, but without it being a flick on a giant Goldberg machine domino effect. First we say, what is truth? Then we say, what is universal? Then we say, what is preferable? Then we say, what is virtue? In none of that exploration is there a commandment to action. Is there a commandment to making or breaking anything? Right? There may be things that flow logically from a particular set of beliefs, but even that is not a commandment. I've never said to people, you have to break with status. I say, well, look, if you define these people as evil and you have informed them of the nature of their immorality and they continue to persist in it, I don't think it's a wise thing to do to, to hang around with people you've openly defined as evil. But these are merely the logical consequences of a particular set of beliefs. But they're not commandments. They're not commandments. Now, in the Bible, it says, shun unbelievers and all that kind of stuff, right? But, but that's, that's a commandment. And so we're so used to value judgments being commandments. And that's your wife's paradigm. If I believe on something, it must fundamentally change my actions, right? Yeah, I think I think that's where we're coming from. So, and the reason that that the, the reason that most belief systems in the world say that acceptance of belief is a domino that results in dollars falling into someone's wallet for the most part, right? It's the same thing with the state, right? Right? If you accept the state, in other words, if you live in the country, by God you must obey the laws, right? Love it or leave it. Love it or leave it, right? And so it, with the state and with religion, it is obey after acceptance. And you are punished even if you don't accept, so just obey, basically, is all it comes down to. But with philosophy, that's not the case. Philosophy is much closer to science. I mean... It's really the father or the mother of science, but um, philosophy is about exploration. Where do you want to go today? Do you want to go anywhere today? Here's some maps. Here's some compasses. It's up to you. Now, if you want to go to San Francisco, well, you have to do the, don't don't head north from Toronto, right? <laughs> Unless you're willing to swim quite a long way. But this is really important to detach consequentialism from the exploration of ideas and arguments. People immediately look at the dominoes that are going to be knocked down or are going to start to flow down 
from the exploration of arguments and ideas. And that is what they use to scare themselves away from exploring those arguments and ideas. Right? Yeah, that's what I was doing. And so if your wife is like, well, okay, if I even dip my foot into this pool, a giant shark is going to come out and eat me whole, then she's not going to want to go anywhere near the water, right? Right. Removing the consequentialism takes away the hysteria from the exploration of arguments. Right? Well, let's say we accept all these atheist arguments. It doesn't mean that we have to do anything as a consequence. That's profound to me. I, I think that's really going to be something that helps. Well, and I think that the reason that and you could appeal to this with regards to the son, right? With your son. I mean, I would assume that she does not want her son to agree with her because he's afraid of her, right? Absolutely. Right. She wants her son to agree with her if what she's saying makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, she, you know, he, she doesn't want him to fake it, right? And so she doesn't want her son's adherence or acceptance or allegiance or obedience. Look at me going through the synonym dictionary, <laughs> somewhat synonym dictionary. But she doesn't want her son's obedience because he's afraid of the consequences of disobedience. In other words, she does not want her son's integrity to be driven by consequentialism, right? Right. That's one thing we've, we've talked about, that we, don't, we want him to do what's right, not because he's afraid of the consequences, but because he, he understands what is right. Exactly. And the idea of truth as altering physics is why people avoid truth, because they don't want physics to be altered. They built their houses on one set of physics. They don't want it to go from Earth to Jupiter, because then their houses will collapse as dozens of times the gravity, right? So truth is not physics. Truth is simply exploration. And to avoid topics and being honest about them is fine, but you cannot avoid topics logically because of a fear of consequences because topics do not contain inherently consequences. Topics in philosophy do not contain consequences. If you step off a cliff, the consequences you're going to fall, right? So physics contains consequences. You drink arsenic, you're going to die, right? So in physics, there are consequences. In philosophy, there are not. There is exploration. Now, consistency may drive consequences, but consistency can be violated, in my book, as long as there is honesty about the inconsistency. I choose not to be an atheist around my parents because blah, 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 A, B, C, X, Y, Z. I have no problem with that. As long as there's honesty. And so if you can detach the domino theory of infinite consequences from your wife's exploration of these ideas, then she will be able to explore these ideas without the emotional volatility of disastrous consequentialism. And she can be as religious as she wants around her parents and still explore these ideas. Because we must ferociously fight against all commandments in philosophy. 
that that makes complete sense and i'm i'm really excited to share that with her yeah just say if if there were no consequences to our discussion wouldn't it be fun yeah and and we've been we've been having more discussions recently and and enjoying them together Right, and you don't want your son to obey you because he's afraid you're going to spank him, right? You said that you you were moved, and I appreciate that and respect you for that. Moved about the prior spanking choices, and you you don't want that. You don't, and you don't want fear of disaster in relationships to be that why which you cannot explore these topics with your wife. Just throw away the consequences and explore the ideas, and uh, that's I think much more intimate. But when people are terrified of consequences. You know, drink this is water is one thing. Drink this is poison is another, right? Yeah. And there's no poison in thought, right? I, mean, I, I feel like we've been taught that, though. Well, in religion, there's that. And in, in statism, there's that. But that's why philosophy needs to make more of a center stage in, uh, in human thought, right? Right. And if she wants to call into this show, I mean, I'm certainly... Uh, happy to, to chat with her. Um, I'm happy to answer questions. You know, we had this woman, um, I guess when we did the show last week, who broke up with a guy because she couldn't accept the arguments for strong atheism, which I then provided to her in about four and a half minutes. And she was like, oh, and I was like, don't <laughs> call in sooner. <laughs> right? So if she wants to call in and speak with, you know, not a great Satan, but probably a medium sized one, uh, she's certainly <laughs> welcome to <laughs> to do that. All right, I I will invite her to do that, and I I'm very thankful for for everything you do, and I I have donated and will continue to. Well, I appreciate that too, and uh, um, if we can save you the cost of a divorce, um, <laughs> it will hopefully be money well spent, and uh, I I don't see any reason why that would be necessary or inevitable. So, um, yeah, keep us posted. And again, if there's anything else we can do, um, I am very keen on keeping good families together. Uh, so um, give us a shout if there's anything we can do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling in. And Mike, who will be next? All right. Just before we move to the next caller, I just want to point out um, there's two really great podcasts on this subject that I strongly recommend people dig deep into the Free Domain Radio archives and listen to. They're titled Screw the Rules, one and two, and their numbers nine sixty three and nine sixty four. That's screw the rules, and uh, pretty much how to keep philosophy from bullying you. Where Steph elaborates on what he discussed in this previous call, and I personally found those to be incredibly useful. So strongly recommend those. That's nine sixty three and nine sixty four. Yeah, and it is. You know, I, I steadfastly reject and refuse. And one of the biggest fights that I have as a public intellectual is the fight against personal authority, the fight against the imposition of rules. Yep. All that is required is honest. Look, if you want to be a libertarian and hang around with statists, be a libertarian and hang around with statists. Mm -hmm. That is entirely fine. Just be honest about it. That's all and say, well, I don't take these beliefs very seriously. That's completely fine. That's completely fine. Uh, say these, there are limits to the, the degree of integrity I'm willing to practice. That's fine too, right? But don't say I'm really committed to these ideas and then hang with people that your ideas and your philosophy define as immoral. Because then if things go wrong, people will think, well, see, but this is what happens when you live with integrity. Like if you're not going to follow a diet 
don't read the diet book in public and then tell people you're following the diet if you keep gaining weight. That's all. Right? That's, just say to people, I'm reading this diet book. I'm doing the exact opposite of what the diet book recommends. And that's fine. Then people, if you keep gaining weight, people then won't get confused and blame the diet. Right? Just all you have to do is be honest, not just with yourself, but with those around you. So, uh, all right. And uh, who is next? All right. Alexander is next, and he's got some questions on friendship, one of my favorite subjects. Uh, first question is, is it more important for coworkers and friends to respect you as a person for the work that you do or for you as a person? Uh, all right. So we've got four quadrants here, right? Friends, coworkers, work you do yourself as a person. So which one do you want to, which one do you want to align first and examine? Um, if it's all right, I would like to examine the, uh, the coworker and work one first. Okay. Okay. So coworkers, um, and the work that you do, do you want to talk about the work that you do or do you want a hypothetical? Uh, you know what? I, I think it'd be best if I talked about the work that I do. Uh, it might make it I a agree. little easier. All right. Um, please tell me you're a sex worker. Oh, uh, male. No, but you, you don't. Like, are you a webcam sex worker? What? Oh, no. Sorry, sorry. I thought you said the sex of my coworkers, and I said that they're all men. Turn on, okay. your, web, turn on your webcam. I need to check. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, yeah. so what do you do? Uh, uh, well, right now, I just got a job in uh, in collections, but actually, the, what, what all these questions are really about are uh, the band members I'm in. I'm in a band, and there's a really, really good chance that I could do this for a living. And that kind of puts the coworkers and friends in a – I think it blurs the line. And so when it comes to these relationships, I'm I'm kind of wondering if if it's possible, if I can, you know, keep them strictly as coworkers, if that's necessary, if that would work or – Wait, wait. I don't – sorry. I don't understand. Oh, what does being in a band have to do with coworkers? I'm I'm missing that point. Oh, um, well – Maybe it's just maybe it's the language we use that's confusing. Um, a lot of two of them have full time jobs. I'm, you know, we're we're really. Um, oh, you mean your bandmates? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought you meant the people in the collecting agency. Unless your band. Oh no 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 no. Sorry, okay. those are okay. totally separate. Yeah. Okay, so your bandmates. Yes, all right. My bandmates. So two of them have jobs. Yeah, full time jobs. Uh, working overtime. I'm trying to. Everybody's kind of trying to get in that category because. Uh, Running, financing a band is, um, it's, it's kind of difficult when you're starting out. So, so we're trying to, you mean like tours and equipment and yeah, yeah, yes. And what kind of band are you guys writing your own stuff or are you covering? We're, we're a metal band and we're writing our own stuff and it's, uh, it's, it's really difficult in terms of it's, it's very technical. So we have to practice a lot too. It's a big time commitment at, it's uh, there's a lot of energy that goes into the writing process. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. so it, uh, juggling a full time job and trying to do everything you can to get the highest quality equipment, paying for advertising, um, paying for all of the people who uh, who will help out. Say even uh, the makeup artists, the actors for the music video we just did. Uh, you know, there's a lot of. Do you want to? Do you want to do a plug here? I mean, I'm I'm happy to put this out to the listenership. If you want to put a plug in for your band name, location, website. Oh, um, uh, 
Let's see. Iron Poodles? Wait, no. <laughs> well, I'm trying to... You know what? I, I don't think that would be a good idea because... Well... All right. You know what? All right. For whatever. We can cut it out. I mean, okay. we've still got an editing process to go through, so well, I, uh, put it in now. It's easier to cut it out if you don't want it later than to put it in if you sure, want it. it. So well, the only, do it now and then. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Our name is uh, Shallow Grave, and we we haven't actually launched anything yet. We're, we're just waiting the next two weeks to um, to launch our website, the music video, kind of start throwing and pushing out uh, every all of our material in a in a strategic order that we're still kind of working on. Um, we're based out of Brooklyn, New York, and our influences are August Burns Red, um, Parkway Drive, and uh, basically a bunch of other bands on Sumerian Records, and uh, what was that other record label? Well, more on the Sumerian side, I, I believe. So if you're interested in those, then you would probably like our stuff as well. All right. So even even though none of the bands that you mentioned is composed of Queen, uh, I I think that it's very good that you that you are promoting your band. Listen, I I understand for the younger people, um, you may have listened to bands other than Queen for reasons I have yet to figure out. But uh, obviously, you'll be looking into it now. Shallow Grave yeah. is the name of the band, and uh, yeah, hope people will will check it out. Um, by the time this goes live, your website should be ready to roll. And uh, yeah, go go check them out. And uh, do your bandmates have families? Is this why they're? What's the right? Uh, well, one of them just uh, just got out of college, and he he's planning on getting married. Um, the rest, no, we're all we're kind of the rest are. Well, my singer is yeah, young single guys. Yeah, yeah, now the guy who's getting married is he like uh, is he like the front man? It's like what is he? What's his gig? What's his job? Uh, you know, he he's the guitarist, uh, and the other guitarist, by the way, is actually a, a fan of Queen. So, <laughs> throw that out there. Out there. All right. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I mean, you can lead with that next time, but it's okay oh. if you don't know your audience that well. That's all right. Um, and uh, so you got two guitarists. That's good. That's metal. Uh, who runs a chainsaw? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> So, the guy who's getting married, what does his fiance think of the band? Uh, that's that's a good question. I asked him, uh, does she like metal music? And uh, he actually told me that he uh, he doesn't think she's particularly into it, but it's but no, she likes no, no. Oh, I'm didn't, sorry. didn't ask about metal music. Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? About metal music. Asked about your band in particular. Oh, Shallow Grave. Right, right. What right. does she think of Shallow Grave? Um. I actually didn't get an answer to that, so I I honestly don't know. Would you like a guess or? No, I I think it's something you need to know. Okay. If she's not behind it, it ain't gonna happen, for him. Right. I, so I, I, I would be you know I I would be pretty ruthless. I did a bit of garage banding when I was in teen a teenager. Yeah, I'd be pretty ruthless. When it came, like you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you, right? Touring is brutal, right? It's necessary, but it's it's rough. And um, so if, if people aren't committed to it, like if you're going to go on tour, you might go on tour for six months. You might go on tour for a year. Now, is this woman going to be coming along or is she going to be sitting at home with, you know, a, uh, <laughs> a, 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 a slender, twitchy hole in the bed where her husband used to be, right? 
right. just going with my guitar stereotypes, right? But uh, right. So, so the, that, that's the question. I mean, I assume that uh, touring is something that you need to do to build your audience. I don't know. Do bands still tour? I oh mean, yes. And it's your Justin Bieber, right? Touring is the de- is the deal, right? That's where you go and and get your audience. And uh, touring will take you a couple of years before you may get uh, anything major going on, right? And uh, is is she married knowing that this is what this guy wants to do? Now, if he's not told her about it or if she's not into it and so on, personally, in my humble opinion, I would look for uh, another guitarist. But um, uh, that is, uh, you know, oh, I, that's I, my yeah, I'm sorry. I, she she went to the first uh, filming of the music video, and she was with us in the recording studio sometimes. So, yeah, it it's totally obvious based on her actions that she's totally supportive and uh, behind him and and the band because she knows. How well, no, no, but no? does she know what all this means? Uh, like, is she going to tour with you guys, or yeah. is she staying home? Oh, uh-huh. and is she going to be comfortable like guitarists, right? If he's a good-looking guy, or even if it's just a guy with a guitar, right? Guitars make they. It, it, you may not know this um, from an audio engineering standpoint, but guitars set off sort of subharmonic waves that make panties disintegrate, <laughs> right? So it's it's like high notes for a singer, right? I mean, it just makes bras explode in um, very syrupy um, and I dare say lubricated ways so is she going to be comfortable if she's not coming on the road is she going to be comfortable with women women's panties exploding around her husband's fretwork and shredding technique right so these are all kind of important questions right yeah i've i've thought about them i just i i guess i wasn't sure um when would be an appropriate time to uh, ask more about him or if that's more of his uh thing but I don't know. Um, I, I guess, I guess it's not clear whether or not she would go with the band or not. But based on the fact that all of our favorite band, like the one band that we all like, um, between the Buried and Me, there, um, it's it's pretty well known that they and actually a lot of other other metal bands, um, at eventually uh, every member got married. Some have kids, um, so that you know. But the, that's after they were established, right? Yeah, that's true. That's not that's not an accident, right? Right. Yeah. Now, what um, what why not make the case that everyone should just quit their jobs? Um, oh, that yeah, that's something we did talk about and that's um basically we have to get signed before we can quit our jobs and actually um be on tour and have some kind of income from you know, merchandise. Uh, no, like but that. but hang on. No, you you can get paid for being on tour, right? I mean, you like bars and clubs and all of that. They pay bands, right? I know it's not a huge amount, but you can get paid for being on tour, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, you mean like if we organized our own tour before we got signed? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, that well, that wasn't part of our our plan. The way um the way our singer and uh, a uh, his his friend who does a lot of uh, producing, video editing, that sort of thing, uh, and advertising. That's not kind of what we had in mind. We were doing it in a kind of reverse order. But I, I yeah, I was kind of thinking about that. Um, I hmm. I mean, look again. Oh, I don't know a huge amount other than band biographies that I've read. So this is just my entrepreneurial side and a tiny bit of musical knowledge. So you know, take this for what it's worth. But I would assume 
that the more practiced you are, the more polished you are, and the more original material you are, you have when you're signed, is the degree to which signing will happen faster and better and this kind of stuff, right? Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely true. That's why we're all practicing uh, as much as we can on our own time whenever we're not working. Um, so I guess the, uh, the, the other question is um, – I, I think everybody's convinced that they can make it happen with the full-time jobs. Uh, and so far, it looks like we need the money more because um, because there, there are certain financial problems we're, we're going to run into. So, Like what? Well, uh, let's see. My singer, can he just got evicted and he's having financial problems um, because he can't even really afford to keep living where he's living. Um you know, I'm I'm trying to uh, move out of the house, or you know, if, at least be able to afford uh, uh, more studio time and uh, you know, transportation, cars. Like uh, some of us don't have cars. We're trying to save up, just saving up for gas. Um, well, maybe more advertising. I, I'm not sure. Um, but so now, do yeah. you have? Uh, sorry, do you have anybody with uh, musical business experience around you? Um, no, I, I don't. That may be something to think about. And it doesn't mean you have to pay someone, right? right. Um, you, you may have bands that you like who aren't super big. They may give you some advice. You might find them on Facebook or give them a pig and say, listen, you know, how did you guys do it? Uh, I, I, I've read a bunch of, I find bands and music and like completely fascinating so i i don't know how many band bios i've read about you know what they did and and how they made it and a, a lot of it seems to have a lot to do with commitment right like you get to go back to queen right so you know the the drummer uh, roger taylor was in dentistry school the um the guitarist brian may was doing his phd in astrophysics uh, Freddie Mercury was uh, in art design school. I can't remember what John Deacon was doing, but you know they're all pretty educated, and they gave up that stuff to just tour. And like for years, I mean, Freddie Mercury was living in this tiny little room with like mold on the wall and shit like that. And they just went and toured and built up an audience through touring. And they were a cover band originally. And Freddie was basically like, look, if, if we want to do anything, we have to do original material, right? You can only cover band your way to the middle. You can't cover band your way to the top. I don't care how good you are, right? Uh, and um, we need to work on original material. And so basically they gave up being a cover band and just started working on original material. And, you know, Queen 1 went nowhere. Queen 2 gave them Seven Seas of Rye. That was their only hit. Although I think it's a side two. Freddie's side is a pretty great, great set, set of songs. Uh, and then a sheer heart attack, you know, gave them one or two uh, hits. Uh, and then, you know, they started to get some more stuff. Um, I guess what was their first big hit? I still remember seeing this on top of the pops, uh, Killer Queen. Uh, and then, you know, so literally, you know, the 10,000 hours, right? I mean, it takes 10,000 hours to start doing stuff that's really cool and original. And it certainly was the case with me with philosophy. It seems to be the case fairly well documented with music as a whole. So, and it's one of the reasons why the Beatles were so big is they played for seven hours a day in Hamburg for years, right? More, you know, more time there than most bands ever play live their whole life. They did this when they were 
young and and had the time and and they all just gave up their lives and went over to go and live in Hamburg and and play and then they started writing songs and you know they just they thought and they did it right I mean that amount of of uh, of practice is you know practice seven hours a day you're going to get pretty good at anything oh yeah I I mean I so so sorry so oh, okay. so the, the you know the the first thing that when I look at any particular kind of venture, right? The first thing that I do is is look at commitment. And you know the old thing that they say about the arts, like if you can be happy doing anything else, then do that other thing, right? Because it's it's hard, and and the people who fall away are legion. And you know if you want to be like a bar band, that's fine. If you want it to be a hobby, that's fine or whatever. But if you really want to make it, and I, you know, I'm the kind of person who's like, well, if I want to do something, I just want to be the best. I mean, why, why aim for the middle? That's it's kind of depressing, especially when it's music where there's such a high toll rate. It takes such great sacrifices and so on, right? So yeah. you know, aim, aim to be like the baddest, kick-assest, most exciting, make the crowd's heads explode with thrill and excitement and great tunes, aim, aim for that. And that takes your 10,000 hours. It takes your commitment. And most people who put in the 10,000 hours end up doing a great job. And well, most people who don't, don't. And so if, if you guys want to do it, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Or as Nietzsche said, give a man a why and he can bear almost any how. And if you guys want to be the best metal band around uh then to me it would just be like commitment like i want to be the greatest philosopher ever i want all philosophers after me to say damn i wish i'd been that guy when that technology came around because you know he tied it up a whole bunch of shit and now we're just cleaning up stuff right i mean right that's what i want i mean that's what i aim for i've always been open about that level of ambition uh, i just you know why would i want to be just someone who's contributing a little bit to the interconnected human fabric of thought. It's like, no, I want to revolutionize the goddamn discipline and take these spinning abstract platonic wheels, slap some Aristotelian rubber on them and put them on the goddamn road and have them go somewhere and take people with them. So um, so those are sort of my thoughts about what it takes to succeed in the arts. I didn't have that when it came to acting or playwriting um, or, or even novel writing. I was willing to put the time in, but I just... Well, first of all, it was too reliant on other people, and I didn't like that. I like relying on myself and, you know, now Mike and, and soon to be employee number three. But I really like just I'm going to do the job. I don't like I don't like gatekeepers. I don't like people who decide whether what I'm doing is appropriate or not or correct in, in some way that I can't quite define or not. I just want to have that. And bands have that now, right? You can go direct to the audience. You know, you, you cut a great video and you can get a lot of attention and you can get booked through that, right? I mean, the capacity oh. to make a go of it as a band now yeah. is, uh, it's not just Bieber, right? It's other people too. So as far as I, you know, I, I think that you, you want to sit down with your band members and just give them the fucking take no prisoner speech. You know, if we're going to do this thing, then let's do it. And if we have to live in a van for a year or two, then we do it. You know, like I took a huge pay cut to do what I'm doing and, you know, invited all kinds of calumny and, and hostility and crazy shit into my life that, you know, it's just part of the price of, of doing what I do. But yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I liked it when nobody knew me. That was, <laughs> that was really nice in a lot of ways. I like that people know philosophy. I wish they didn't give a shit about me. I like that they know philosophy and you know if i could have done this in some anonymous way well that wouldn't have worked out because then i wouldn't have had the courage of my convictions to stand in front of them and show who i was but but uh, you know to me it's like you don't 
you don't take a water gun to D-Day, you know, like if you're going to take the beach, then, you know, suit up and go in blazing. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, that, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, it just, it also, I'm under the impression that I, I didn't quite, uh, make the point that we're all, these are the best musicians I've ever played with, uh, ever. They're really, really good. And, um, let's see, how do I, well, pretty much ever since I started drumming, I've also practiced a lot. So I've just the amount of hours I've logged practicing throughout my life up until this point is really, really unusually high. So uh, I, I think based on the time that most of us have practiced, well, yeah, all of us really have practiced, um, I think that kind of gives us some leniency uh, or at least some time um, that we can devote to making money. And I think that's probably why we're confident that we can hold on to the full-time jobs, at least for now. I mean, yeah, maybe, we, yeah, we might go uh, plan some kind of tour maybe early next year. That's actually a possibility. Um, but I think that's why we're confident right now in what we're doing. And secondly, we actually, the one person who knows the most about the industry, how it is now that we know is the, the producer who, uh, if he, when he makes this video, it's going to kind of jumpstart his career so that he can um, do more of that for metal bands. He's, he's currently doing um, all kinds of photography and video editing for, I think it was, um, it was some kind of lighter genre of music. Um, but anyway, so he wants to do more metal. Um, he knows the industry and he uh, basically told us that we we need to look like we have money because a lot of record companies, um, you know, bands, uh, there's some kind of financial thing with bands and then they, they break up based on based on that. And record companies, if they see that we already have some kind of some kind of money, then they're not as concerned about that or uh, that that their investment isn't as risky, uh, if that makes sense. And that's just what I was told. So. I'm trying to process that too, but it sounds reasonable to me. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Well, it sounds like, um, I mean, you've, you've got decisions lined up. Then uh, I certainly wish you the very best with the band. I, those are just my thoughts. I'm a big one for kind of go, go all in. Oh, uh, uh, and especially when you're young and, and single and pre-kids and all that. I mean, just yeah. uh, go and, and uh, play, you know, if you've got to play in coffee shops, go play in coffee shops. If you got to like, just go play. And uh, the word will get out uh, and, and write, you know, play and write and play and write. And uh, that would be my suggestion. Uh, you know, if the guy is homeless, it's a good time to not get a new place, right? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, well, I, um, I think I think the, the main reason why um, why I, I kind of wanted to to talk about the, the whole respect thing and friendships and coworkers, though, what it wasn't really because of our financial situation. It's maybe it's probably related to the pressure that that the psychological pressures that come with that, but it's really more of, um, respect and the writing process. Like the, I mean, we've, we've had a few arguments. Some of them get kind of intense sometimes. And, uh, I, I'm, it's, it's not as clear as if you're hanging out with a friend who you just know from school or from your childhood, um, there's no professional relationship. So that person kind of has to respect you as a person before, you know, work is relevant, but, 
um, and, and somebody who you just work with, who you just met, that's kind of, that's neatly in that category. But when you're in a band and your work and your personal relationships are kind of mixed, um, does that mean that if I, if I have any kind of personal problem or, or if anybody else has a personal problem, if there's some kind of conflict at the personal level, then we can't work together or, so I'm just trying to figure out, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to draw the lines and figure out, uh, if this happens, would this be enough that like the band might break up over, over it or, um, or we'd have to just, you know, get rid of that person or, or I would have to leave. So I guess that's what, uh, the main reason why I was calling in. Well, I mean, if, if you believe in each other as musicians and you believe in each other as creative artists, then you just make that commitment to stay, right? Okay. Oh, you th- all right. You think it's that simple? Yeah. So you sit, you sit down and you say, uh, okay, look, look, obviously we're going to have disagreements, right? I mean, obviously we're going to fight about whose song we should play or, or whose song we should learn or whose song we should work on, or we're going to fight about royalties. We're going to look, we're going to have conflicts, Right. And what do we do? What, what, what do we do when we have these conflicts, right? And so, you know, my wife and I, we were aware that we were going to have conflicts. And we say, listen, if we're going to get married, then we, uh, we're going to stay and work on the conflicts. We're going to work out the conflicts. No, nobody gets to storm out. Nobody gets to threaten divorce. Nobody gets to, right? I mean, not that we've come anywhere close to that, but that was our commitment. We are committed to this relationship and we are going to make it work, right? Okay. Yeah, that... That makes a lot of sense. And you sense. just have that conversation to say, look, is, is this what we're going to do? Now, if people are like, well, you know, I don't want to be comfortable with that. You know, I mean, I, you know, I'm happy to walk out if I have too many disagreements and so on. Then you're kind of in a constrained place, right? You need trust to be creative. Oh, oh yeah. Right? Yes. Right. You need to know, like, I can come up with some crazy, like, Micah, how many, how many show ideas do I come up with that suck? Oh, I don't, I don't think there's that many. Really but there's some, right? There's some that we go, that, that's, no one would be interested in that. What were you talking about, like historical anarchism? Um, you're going to do a History show. of anarchism, yeah. history of philosophy. Uh, Who's going to click on that on YouTube like, kind of thing? Or even things did that mashup about uh, the truth, right? And I was like, hey, we should upload this to our channel. And you're like, ah, you know, for not for X, Y, and Z, right? Right. right? So, and like, I have the same thing. Up, I have plenty of ideas. Yeah, and it's like, ideas. nah, let's not do that. <laughs> right. So um, when it comes to creativity, then you need to have trust. And, and trust is the essence of creativity. If you don't have trust, then you self-censor for fear of upsetting the relationship. And if you self-censor, you can't be creative. Oh, my. You just blew my mind with that. <laughs> That's – wow. Okay. Yeah, how would it be, Steph, if when you propose an idea that I didn't like, I went, Jesus Christ, Steph, what are you talking about? That? <laughs> no, no, oh. it's, no. Jesus, no. Jesus Christ, Steph, uh, no. If you said uh, – I quit. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'm going to take my ball and go home because you had this idea that I didn't like. Yeah, then, I mean, even if we work that out, I know that if there's some idea you don't like, then you can just shut me out. Yeah. Right? And therefore, how creative can I be? Yeah. I'm happy. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Wow. All right. Um, What's going on in your head right now, Alex? It seems like... Uh... I, I basically... I've been in bands in the past with... Um, people who are pretty difficult to work with 
the the guitarist in the first band I was in that uh, went in the studio and we started out to be you know kind of serious. Um, he oh, he he had we had some kind of trust issues and he uh, didn't want me to do a lot of things on the drum set because he you know he's the guitarist he wants the spotlight most of the attention that sort of thing so he thought the drummer should kind of hang back sometimes and I'm a little more ambitious than that. In fact, I'm very ambitious and have a lot of my own ideas and tried to incorporate them. We fought a lot and, uh, you know, and, and that ended very badly where we used to be best friends. Now we hate each other. I want nothing to do with them. He invited me to his wedding. I no, I don't want anything to do with them. Uh, I mean, all kinds of problems with that. So, and all, in all my personal relationships, I have trust issues and, they're being tested in this band right now and that's why it's so hard for me to trust everybody in this band and that's why the writing process is so difficult that makes a lot of sense yeah and i'm sure this goes back to to childhood stuff i mean it's yeah. the usual theme of the shows right like this guy was talking earlier about um commitment and and focus and and pushing through stuff and so on. And, you know, again, watch, you know, they're on YouTube, watch Queen work on, you know, a song that's not that great, One Vision. Uh, but, you know, watch them. And, and the, you know, they, Freddie keeps saying to the guitarist, oh, try it this way. I don't like it. Try it that way. And the guitarist is like, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, the, the drummer, the drummer is saying that, right? Uh, and listen, I mean, one of their early hits, I mean, they, they were kind of a hard rocking band early on. And one of their first hits was You're My Best Friend, which is this guy talking about his wife, you know? I mean, it's it's one of the gayest but loveliest <laughs> hard rocking songs that you can possibly imagine. They, they, they started off playing Muddy Waters and stuff, and it's like, ooh, you're my best friend. You know, and it's just like, oh, man. But they're like, hey, this is a great song. Let's make it, you know, uh, as, as fun as we can. And it's a, a light, funny song. You know, and, and Killer Queen, I mean, it's all falsetto. I mean, it's it's like, I mean, Marie Antoinette, are you kidding me? I mean, for a metal band to say, let them eat cake, she says, just like Marie Antoinette. I mean, that's crazy, right? Uh, and I mean, can you imagine the first time, like, somebody comes in and starts hearing Bohemian Rhapsody, and he's like, they play the opening ballad stuff, and it's like, oh, well, you see, here's where the opera kicks in. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, if they didn't trust this process... How could they have got anything done uh, that was of any consequence, of any originality? Hmm. You know, Freddie Mercury suddenly decides that he wants to do an opera album, uh, and, and he just goes and, and does it with Monsieur Caballé. He also decides that he wants to go and uh, do ballet with the National Ballet, you know, because he really wants to look as straight as humanly possible. And he just... Uh, you know, they're like, yeah, go for it, right? I mean, he was, you know, it was also more of solo stuff or whatever. But uh, it's, you know, and, and then like most people, the solo stuff that they do is pretty crappy, right? But the stuff they all do together, at least in, in the, sort of the middle 15-year creative period, was great. But um, uh, I don't, you know, pe people have, the commitment is to the music. The commitment is not to the ego. The commitment is not to the attention. The commitment is how can we make this song better? How can we make the most pulse-pounding, energetic kick-ass, dark or light, gay or straight, funny or serious, ballad or, or you know, something that excavates a, uh, a ghoul's heart and smears it on your brain. I mean, whatever we're going to do, the commitment is to the music and whatever it takes to make the music as great as possible, 
that's what you do. And if the guy who writes a song tells you to squeak like a penguin on your head, do that. Like a friend of mine was in a heavy metal band and they did a song called Fairies or Boots and they wanted me to come out and attack the, the uh, guitarist and then throw myself into the audience. Because that was part of the song, the way they—that was the way it was in the video—and uh, I'm like, yeah, all right, sounds fun, right? And so I went down. They were playing the Alma Combo when I was a teenager, and uh, I came out, went insane on stage, bit the guitarist, and jumped into the crowd. It's like, well, that's what the song was, or you know, that's what it, how it worked. And so, yeah, sounds great. You know, what am I going to say? Well, I'm not sure that's really uh, in, in my dignity as an artist. It's like, no, fuck, good, you know. Hmm. That's that's wild. Wow. Um, I, I I think the uh, one of the most frequent criticisms I get is, well, no, that's um, you know that's a little too over the top because you know if we don't do if we don't fit the mold, then the record company uh, won't. Uh, wait, know. wait. A metal band is worried about being over the top. Yeah, yeah I know, right? <laughs> you know, your clown your clown makeup is too clowny. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know that doesn't. <laughs> You know, as as an exotic dancer, I find you too nakedy. I mean, isn't that sort of the point? I mean, that's we, yeah. over the, we want to be noticed, but we don't want to go over the top. It's like go over the top. I mean, Freddie Mercury was once talking yes. about uh, for their the works tour. He said, "Here's what I want, darlings. Here's what I want. You see, I want to be there to be a giant open mouth over the stage, and I want this giant cock." to come floating in from the end of the stadium and jam itself balls deep into the mouth over the stage. <laughs> wow. Now, that didn't actually happen, uh, but more for reasons of legality than anything else. Uh, but, um, yeah, they're like, huh, interesting, let's explore that. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, I mean, just be open uh, to, to creativity. It's really important. So this over-the-top stuff, uh, uh, that's guessing the future, you know. Over-the-top is not something that is measured by music. I mean, how do I go over-the-top as a philosopher? I mean, I, I don't even know what that would mean. Hmm. I, well, I, I think the difference there is that um, there's no <laughs> philosophy company that you have to convince that you're worth uh, yes, to sign is. a other. Yes, yes, oh. there is. It's yeah, called so my audience. Yep. Oh, okay. I mean, do you think I get yeah. paid for nothing? I get paid for uh, for what I do. And I, you know, I will stop at nothing to serve philosophy. I will lead crowds and sing-alongs. I will sing well, I will sing badly. Uh, you know, again, not to bring queen into everything, but they've got this song, which says, you know, we'll, um, we'll sing to you in Japanese. We're only here to entertain you. You know, they'll do anything, uh, whatever it takes to keep the audience's attention to get the music across. And that's just for some stupid songs, let alone virtue, truth, and, and goodness. Right. Um, so in, in the service of music, in the service of philosophy, in the service of your dream, you've got to keep adjectives out of the mix and just commit to fully engage in the process. And who, who knows what the hell does over the top mean? It just means that it makes me anxious to do it. Well, good. That means you're breaking new ground. Then do more of that, right? Well, it, yeah, in this in this case, um, based on my singer and uh, his background, it seems like it means he's afraid that if it's over the top, it means the two record companies that he thinks we have a, a, the best chance at getting signed to or with, uh, that they're not going to like it. So he's trying to come up with um, ideas that 
that have worked for other bands and we shouldn't deviate too far from them. That's that's kind of what he means and by is it. That, is that your vision no, of what a successful band looks like? No. Uh, the guitar, one of the guitarists and I, we have like way further crazier ideas that are out there and kind of stretching and pushing the, the genre um, and, you know, doing all kinds of new things and uh, and then the other two guys are kind of like in between both extremes so we're we we have a mix of views on how it's going to work out so far we've been able to compromise a lot but um i don't know i i mean we'll see what happens uh well then look look it's your look if you want to be the creative leader of the band right and that just means breaking the ice it doesn't mean swimming for everyone right yeah but then uh, you know you have to have the same philosophy right so mike i mean how how do we know what what would be something over the top for us oh that's a good question i don't know i think you taking your shirt off in, in the middle of a show <laughs> was approaching over the top but that was great over the top list is different <laughs> over the top list <laughs> i've talked about buying a wig and a <laughs> Some makeup for you so you can do a show with Stephanie Molyneux talking about feminism. <laughs> I don't know if that's over the top. Yeah, I, wasn't, I was thinking I, if there were going to be lots of protesters at the men's rights conference, I was going to go in in drag. <laughs> right, like I'm with you, sisters. Let me just slip in through the side here and and with a beard so that they couldn't get overly gender stereotypical. But uh, yeah, I would have I would have done the whole thing in full drag uh, if if that was going to be what was necessary to get the message across. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, you you got to do what you got to do. I mean, uh it's it the creativity is really what gets the audience, right? I mean, that, if you have nothing new to offer, then why would any record company be interested or um yeah, it's No, no, but you guys oh, no? know that you see the point. Oh, sorry. sorry to be annoying. No, no, yeah, what am I missing? The the point is it's not the fucking record company. It's the fucking audience that matters. Oh. If you guys are playing for the record company, Oh. It's the audience that matters. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Right? If you get a deal with the record company and the audience doesn't love you guys, you will fail. Yeah, yeah. Right? Aim at the audience and the record company will beat a path to your door. Right? Yeah. Aim at the record company and the audience won't give a shit. We're assigned. That's for like for your ego to explain to other people what you're doing. Right? It's, it's the audience is what matters. Yeah, definitely. You aim at the audience. What is going to get the asses in the seats? And then what's going to get the asses out of the seats so that they'll mosh pit or dance or whatever the hell people do at metal concerts, right? Do the robot? I don't know. But um, uh, it's it's the audience, right? So this is the focus. So if somebody's like, well, I know what the record company's like and the record companies won't like this and won't like that. It's like, hey, I came here for two fucking things, music and an audience. The record company is a necessary evil to get that shit accomplished. Maybe, I don't know, right? But I came here for the music and I came here for the audience. We make great music. We connect with the audience as a live act. The world is our oyster. We don't do those things. We may get signed, but everyone's going to lose money and that's our one shot. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, my, one of my favorite bands, they were signed to a really big record company, uh, and then they were because of their they had a really really loyal fan base. Were able to um, to drop off of the record company and uh, do something more independent, and they, their name is still pretty big. So, um, well, yeah. Listen, I mean, again, this I'm not a, a band, but I'll tell you this. I mean, 
uh, we uh, all we think about is the audience. Yeah. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, we think about philosophy and we think about the audience, right, Mike? Absolutely. There's plenty of shows that I would like to do, like, oh, that would be interesting to look into, but I know it would die a slow death on YouTube. And it's not the yeah, best how, how time often do we, Yeah, Mike, how often do we worry about what the mainstream media is going to say? Zero uh, percent of the time. Zero <laughs> percent of the time. How often do we think about what trolls are going to say? Zero uh, percent of the time. Yeah, zero percent of the time. Uh, how often do we um, think about uh, whether um, – I don't know. There's some particular interest group somewhere out there, whether they're going to be bothered by what we're going to say. Don't give a shit. Yeah. Occasionally we will think about it and aim at it. <laughs> <laughs> we've done shows. Uh, when we did, yeah, when, when we did the unschooling show a little while ago, I was like, I'm excited for this show because I know it's going it, to provoke a lot of uh, conversation within the community. And it's going to be pretty polarizing. I was excited about it. Because it's an important subject, an important topic. I actually like going towards the topics that are going to uh, rustle people's jimmies. I know those are the oh, yeah. shows the fire, I'm most the fire, interested in. Yeah. The fire is, is going to come anyway. You might yeah. as well walk towards it. So, so what we care about is, um, is it true? Is it valid? Is it important? And then we care about the audience. Yeah. And it's the intersection of these two things that matters. And that is the entire success. I think that the audience gets... You can't fake anything, and most communication is nonverbal. I think that the audience really gets how committed we are to bringing philosophy to the audience in a valuable and engaging way. Right? You can't fake that. You can't pretend it. Mm. And they know because sometimes I'm like two and a half hours on a call with someone, right, until we get something of value out of it, right? And I know that drives people nuts. Like, oh, these shows are too long and this and that and the other. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Tons of cats out there playing piano on the YouTube if you, if you want to go do that stuff. <laughs> but here, you know, we, we don't expect to change people's lives in 28 seconds or more or less, right? Sometimes it does take an hour or two to really connect with someone in a way that's going to alter their life trajectory. And if people don't want to wait around for that, they don't have to. But I am committed to you, the caller, and I'm committed to the audience as a whole. So... And the reason I'm saying this is not because you want to start a philosophy show, but because you want to be a great – you want to be in a great band. And that means making sure that you commit to the music that commits to the audience. Everything else is a distraction. And there's nothing wrong with those distractions. I mean they're necessary. You've got to drive to the gig. But it's like how can we make the songs that connect to the audience, right? What lyrics can we write? What What – Bars can we work in? What, uh, you know, what styles can we use that is really going to connect with, I mean, if it's metal, I assume it's some of the anger, some of the pain, some of the frustration, some of the hopes, some of the disappointments that your audience members will be happening. So these, so these audience can look at you and saying, these guys are playing my life. I had a picture when I was in um, theater school of uh, a young Marlon Brando, um, and he was like, he gets it. I'm looking at that picture, like he gets it, and I think that's one of the reasons why Brando would like he gets some of the the, the, the existential angst and challenge and and horrors and and hopes of um, of the modern world. Like you want to create, I think, the kind of stuff where people come to your audience and they feel visible, their inner selves, their secret selves feel visible. Maybe for the first time in their lives, they're like, "Fuck me, these guys get it. They get what it's like to be me." They're singing my life. They are playing my fucking life. And I, I will 
walk across the desert for these guys. You create the loyalty of visibility, of the visibility of the secrets that everyone is holding inside them. You bring those secrets to the light and you make them fucking sparkle with creativity and depth and wit and intelligence. And people love you for loving the secrets they never thought they could tell. Hmm. Yeah. And you can write music like that in any genre. Yeah, um, I think the only the only thing to add to that would be uh, because of the, the the really large metal or large percentage of the metal fan base, uh, they also play instruments. So because um, it, a lot of the music's really technical and involved, so a lot of the people who can really appreciate it kind of understand the finer details about how this drummer played this fill or groove or this guitarist can do, do that sweep or whatever. So. Um, like for, for I am me, mighty skeptical of that. Oh, really? I am my, look, I don't know. I oh, don't no, no. Know, oh, I'm sounds, sorry. It sounds like you're making it about an appreciation of your technical skill. Well, that's that's the um, I, I guess that was my focus in the band because I, I don't no, write. No, no, oh, they don't this, care this if Britney Spears can sing or not. Can she sell tickets? No, no. And, and look, I mean, this comes straight from Quincy Jones, right? One of the great producers of the 20th century, right? So Quincy Jones, some guy was coming into audition and is playing all these riffs up and down on the piano, technically very difficult. And he's like, yeah, okay, it's great that you can do that. But, you know, I want songs that you can play with one finger. Right. You, you know what he meant by that, right? Which oh. is. Right. Right. You can play that. You can play sitting on the dock of the bay with one finger. Well, I mean, that stuff is catchy. <laughs> it's uh, no, 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 no. Catchy, no? catchy, well, catchy is what accomplished musicians use to talk about melodies they can't yet write. Hmm. Catchy is a put-down phrase, right? Oh, that's catchy, like a by Menon, like a jingle. No, 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 no. No, writing melodies, and melodies doesn't mean pop, right? You can have powerful melodies in metal, in punk, you name it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? But something you can play with one hand. You can play you, with one finger. You can play all of Bohemian Rhapsody with one finger, and everybody will recognize it, right? Yeah. And so wanting to be known for your technical excellence is a bit of a vanity project. And it's not – then you're trying to make it about you and your skill. And I'm saying make it about the music and the audience. Huh. Okay. Yeah. I mean I, I was trying to do both, but it no, seems No, no. Like... Forget, forget the vanity stuff. And, right. you know, for, for, the art is that which conceals art. You want to make it look easy. And look, there will be people who go like, holy shit. Like, damn, that guy can play. But look, Eric Clapton has – People who don't know which end of the guitar to hold who say, yeah, great songwriter, great singer, right? Yeah. yeah. Is he a great guitarist? I don't know. I like Layla, right? And then there are other people who were like, dear God in heaven, like that man basically was born with a guitar coming out of his ass and he just pushed it the other way and learned how to play it, right? <laughs> yeah. No, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Listen, I was into Queen long before I got what incredible musicians they are. Forget, forget, like... It's not, uh, you know, I would rather go see a band play a great song badly than play a bad song really well. 
Oh. Like when I was in uh, when I was in um, uh, in Detroit, I turned on the radio and it was some local campus radio, and they were playing some song, and it was like, oh my god, this is like physically unpleasant. Like I pay good money for this band to stop playing this song. Like it was atonal, it was uh, offbeat, it was off kilter, uh, and it's just like, oh my god, that's horrible. And every everyone who's an aficionado of any band has like a couple of songs that are just terrible. Right, like Queen has "Sweet Lady," right? Like you call you sweet, like you're some kind of cheese. You call me sweet, like I'm some kind of cheese. Like, oh my God, there's terrible lyrics, right? Or or "Yellow Breezes" or even "Stealing." I mean, it's just there's stuff that they do. It's just terrible, right? There, I was very excited when I first got a hold of the live version of "Manish Boy" because it's a great song. But my God, they do a terrible version of it, right? So, I mean, the great musicians just doing terrible stuff, and who wants to hear it, right? Um, so forget about. You know, obviously work on your skills and all that. Listen, I mean, if people understood, I would like people to understand more about the technical stuff that I do that is really great or the insights that I come up with sometimes on the fly or the stuff that is at the end of the conversation that I say after an hour, this is why I brought it up at the beginning. I'd like more people to say, wow, for that kind of stuff, right? But fundamentally, that doesn't matter. Because it's not about people's applause at my skill in these conversations. It is about whether I connect with someone to help them with their lives, to help them with their lives with principles. Hmm. So I'm really concerned if, if somebody says, I want the audience to know how great I am technically. That comes from an insecurity. Shit. I mean, look, listen, listen to, I mean, listen to um, Clapton Unplugged, right? There's like no fast fretwork in that shit at all. I mean, it is slow, lazy slide guitar, right? Absolutely precise and fantastic, right? I mean, or, or you can go listen to Freddie Mercury live doing the Prophet song, where he literally for like six or seven minutes, it's just him and a microphone and a loop back. Or, you know, Brian May does his endless wank job guitar solos and stuff like that. And I... I, I I don't care that much about guitar, so I generally skip over those. I care more about the vocals. But forget it. it, It's not about people's appreciation of your skill. It's about you being an invisible pane of glass through which people can see the painting. People don't want to say, well, that's really clear glass, isn't it? That glass was made so expertly, there's not a bubble in it. There's not a ripple in it. You want people to forget about the glass and just see the painting. And you want people to forget about you and just see the music. Now, the better you are as a musician, the more people are going to see the music and the more people are going to get the music. And then some people later will say, well, I guess that was really clear glass that I could see the music through, right? That I could see the painting through. But if you want people to see what a great musician you are, you're putting your ego between them and the music. And that's where you're going to fight for attention, right? Oh, yeah, that's a big Does this make problem. sense at all? Yes, it does. And I, I think I also, wow, uh, just made a connection based on that, that I I think the whole reason why this is such a really big problem is because um, three of us, well, the, this one of the guitarists, he's really one of the smartest guys I know academically. So um, a lot of us are... I, I'm kind of ambitious too. I wanted to go to law school and do all these things. And I always thought it was a matter of just working really hard and, you know, reading these books. And, uh, if I do that, you know, I'll get accepted to a law school. So I kind of treated this the same way. I thought 
the only thing that mattered was practicing and technical skill. And if I did this, then, you know, my band would succeed and that's it. And now that you're telling me this, I'm starting to realize, well, technical skill is more of, uh, to go back to the, the, the pain glass, it, um, the greater my skill, the more colors I would have to work with through which the audience can see and appreciate the music. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, yes. Look, I mean, it, when you go to an art gallery, you don't look at the technique, do you? You look at the pictures. Right, yeah. Now, if you're an artist or if you're interested, you can go. But the whole reason that the the pictures are hanging there is because they speak to someone. They they, they mean something. They they matter to someone. They They compel someone. They move someone. And... You need technique to do that. Don't, I'm not, you know, not saying, you know, go, go play the xylophone with five minutes practice and expect to fill Massey Hall. You need the technique. But the purpose of art, and this is, goes way back, the purpose of art is to conceal art. If you're watching a play and you never forget that it's a play, they've done something wrong. Huh. Right? Like, if yeah. you're watching an actor, like, let's say you go watch Harrison Ford do a movie, Right? And you're like, wow, that really is Harrison Ford. Yeah, he's got that same smirk, that same sneer, that same clenched-jawed, angry shit that he did all the way from American Graffiti, right? Then he's not doing a great job. Now, if you forget that it's Harrison Ford, then he's done an amazing job, right? Like, you can go and watch Capote and you can forget that it was Philip Seymour Hoffman because he just transforms himself, right? Yeah. Or if you watch... um, the Godfather, and then you watch the movie. Oh, shit, for the life of me, I can't remember. I think he made it with Bertolucci. Um, uh, uh, something Paris. Um, like if you can look it up, it's a Brando film with the word Paris in the title. I can't remember it for something. So, uh, I because I watched the Last uh, Godfather. In Paris. Last Tango in Paris. Thank you. So I watched The Godfather, where he plays this sixty-five-year-old guy. He's you forget that it's Brando. Because it's just like, wow, it's amazing. And then a movie he made after it called Last Tango in Paris. He's playing a dissolute 40-year-old expat in in Paris, you know, who perhaps was the inspiration for the marketing phrase, get the butter. But he's like a, a completely different guy, a completely different guy. Now, Robert De Niro tends to be Robert De Niro. They're more character character characters than they are actors but when people really disappear into a role uh, that's to me then you forget about the art and you're simply that's a person that's a character where you're no longer conscious of the effort of art but you are simply reaping the rewards of art there's no strain there just is right like you have to work really hard to pull a tree out of the ground, but you can just pick a piece of eye-level fruit very easily, right? And so I don't want people to think, wow, you know, Steph is really good at these conversations, right? Well, I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But but I recognize that I have, if I'm going to, to be the best at the conversations, then my process has to be invisible in the conversation. You know, if somebody, like I remember going to see when I was at a business conference, we went out to do karaoke, and some someone was singing. I can't. I don't even know the name of the song, but it sort of goes, uh, "And she will be loved" or something like that, right? And man, he just fucking muscled that 
note, you know, I mean, he just, he didn't know anything about, you know, singing from the belly or what, relaxing your throat or anything. And, you know, there's people who hit the note and then there's just people who fucking punch it, you know, and the note just falls over. It's like, okay, you hit the note, but it really hit you back and you'll feel it in the morning, right? And that's, whereas a singer who can just sing and it's, you know, effortless or whatever, that's the person you want to go here or whatever, right? And so that, the, the lack of effort that results from a huge amount of work is really important, right? So people, like I went to do the speech in Detroit and people are like, wow, that was a great speech. You really connected with the audience. You really this, you really that, you know, like it's some sort of miracle. You know, like, wow, you've got real talent at public speaking. It's like, good God. I've been talking to people now, you know, for four, five, six, seven hours a week for eight years, for seven years, for six years, whatever it is, right? I mean, every every speech is a speech. Every show is a speech. This is a speech. And then people find it some sort of miracle that I'm able to talk in front of them. Anyway, so... But but I like that. I like that people are like, well, of course he's going to do a great job. I mean, look at all that preparation. I want them to think it's a kind of miracle because that means they're not focusing on me and the effort, right? Hmm. So I, I think as far as connection goes, I want to be the clear pane of glass through which people can see philosophy, through which people can see the truth. I really want people to focus on the truth and not me. The more they focus on me, the less well I'm doing my job. And you'll see this in stupid criticisms of what I do is that they don't focus on the arguments. They focus on me, on my personality, on the effects of what it is that I'm saying, but they won't focus on the arguments, right? All they do is look at the glass. They don't look at the picture and they think they're criticizing the picture. But the fact that they're looking at the glass means they're avoiding the picture, and which means they don't get philosophy, which means they have no right to criticize a philosopher, right? I mean, I can't criticize an artist by saying the glass in front of the picture is a problem, right? I may be criticizing the glass, but I'm not criticizing the art. And you want people to get so swept up in the music that they don't even know how good you are. You're that good. You want to aim higher at a recognition of your talents to the point where your talents are invisible. That's the supreme ambition. The supreme ambition is to have your skill set invisible to the vast majority of people and have it blow the minds of the few. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Huh. That... Wow, that's that's never that is not something that I would have ever uh, figured out on my own, uh, given the kind of culture and and metal and just drumming and oh wow, that's that's crazy. It it makes it makes sense though. I mean, it yeah, you a great drummer is like I don't even know why the fuck my hips are moving, but they sure are, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it yeah that it also explains another like there. Hmm. Why I like music is a little weird, too, because, I, yeah, I like it for a lot of technical reasons, but there are a lot of songs that I can't explain why I like them because there's no particular technical reason. And more often than not, a lot of other people really like them. And it's pretty much for the reason you just mentioned, because you can kind of get lost in them and forget about all the, the band members when you're listening to them. 
So right, right. That makes sense. And Alex, yeah. there's another component of this too that we touched on gently at the start of the call, and that's the idea of going all in versus having a a part-time job or doing it on the side or trying to fit it in or make room for it. And Steph, I know you, when you know you were making the decision to go full-time to Freedom Main Radio, you had the option of working, what was it, three days a week? Yeah, for a I decent chunk of change? Pretty good, yeah, pretty good chunk of change to work three days a week and then have four days a week for philosophy. This is before I had kids. Yeah. And what was, uh, what was your thought process? Why you didn't take that and go, oh, I'll do three days work, four days in philosophy? I mean, what was your thoughts around the idea of going all in versus kind of hedging with the stable, reliable? Well, I mean, it's a long process, but fundamentally, it was not about me. Mm -hmm. What does the world need? Right? What does the world need? Does the world need uh, part-time philosophy? If if I thought that it wouldn't make a difference whether I was part-time or full-time, I shouldn't do it at all. Mm. Like, if I think I'm good enough to do it, then the world needs more of me. Right? Which is why we have a second call-in show now every week. Right. So if this is helping people and if there's nobody else who can do it in this particular way and if this is essential for the future, then what right do I have to do it part time? Right. If you guys are going to make music that's going to connect people, that's going to inspire people, that's going to kick people out of complacency, that's going to wake up secret parts of themselves that they may have thought were long dead. What the fuck right do you have to have a part time job? The world needs you. Go, go do it. You know, it's like a doctor saying, well, only I can cure this disease that is killing millions of people. But uh, I'd really like to do some woodworking three days a week. It's like, (laughs) fuck, people are dying. Go help them, for Christ's sake, right? And I think that comes through in what you're doing. You know, if you're all in versus if you're kind of hedging. You can't fake it. Yeah. I mean, how many books did you write in the first year, Steph? Oh, I wrote two books a year until I had kids, yeah. and uh, I'm getting hoping to get back into that. But uh, yeah, it's um, people know. They know if you're all in. And I was faced with a similar decision. I could have stayed at my jobby job, maybe tried to go part-time, or try to fit in you know, free-domain radio stuff on the side. But we wouldn't have grown the show download-wise three times if I did that. That wouldn't happen. I wouldn't have been able to just focus 100%. And it would have come through in the work that I did. Absolutely. Well, and my desperate and bottomless neediness <laughs> would have invaded your, your life anyway. So, you know, I mean, as, as soon as I had your tax number, I mean, or, or where you were working, <laughs> it would have happened anyway. They called, so you might someone well. called it another bomb threat. We don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Hello, Anderson. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, it is, uh, you know, Mike, Mike goes to the washroom and I, I panic. <laughs> And another aspect of this, in addition to going all in, which we touched on earlier, is having the support of the people around you. That's the scariest part yeah. by far. Because if you don't have that support, it's not going to happen. Like if if the bandmate that is getting married, if she's not all in, he's not gonna. it's not going to happen with him. Yeah. If my wife wasn't all in in me doing this, it wasn't going to happen. Steph, if your wife wasn't all in, it wouldn't have happened. If you don't have people around you that are going to support you, in what you're doing and be there with you if you're passionate, excited to go all in about something, it's not going to happen. 
Well, it, it, it's a lack of love, right? Yeah. I mean, if this is what makes me happy, if this is what makes Mike's happy, then our, our spouses should be into it because they care about us, right? So Tom Likas has an argument that I'll just sort of pass along. I don't know whether you accept it or not. I'm still mulling it over. But he basically says, look, women are dream killers because yeah. a woman uh, – like whatever you want to get done, get done before you get married because most women um, do not want their man to continue to upgrade himself because then – they'll sort of feel that he can just do better than them, right? Right, which is sort of why you see usually two fat people together, right? Because, you know, the the, the woman is like, well, if he loses weight, then he can do better than me. He's going to dump me, right? And I don't know what the man feels, the same thing maybe. But women in particular, um, if the man gets higher status, they're concerned that he's going to dump her and trade up, right? And, um, you know, whether you accept that or not, I think that's, it's it's worth thinking about. You know, I, I can't vouch for it. It's not exactly a philosophical truth, but this is based on a fairly well documented uh, hypergamy uh, approach, right? Which is women want to want to trade up and so on. And so that's sort of what I'm asking. Like, if if is is this woman can is is she going to be comfortable being married to a rock star who's going to have his pick of women? Like, you've got to be a confident woman to want to be married to a rock star, right? You got to feel like you. You know, got the buns ahead of Locklear and uh, whatever, right? Uh, or whatever it is, like, you got to feel so much like your man loves you so much that even if he has the choice of all the women in the world, he's still going to choose you, right? I would think so. And so, so. If, she, if she's not going to be comfortable being married to a rock star, guess what? He ain't going to become a rock star one way or another, right? Yeah. That would that would be a really big problem because he's the one – he's also the one who started the band, uh, definitely the one who got me into it. So, well, again, these are just things to, yeah. to, to figure out, right? Yep. Um, so, I hope that uh, I hope that helps. And listen, I mean, Shallow Grave is a great name. I certainly wish you the very best. <laughs> Thanks. With the band, and uh, you know, if you want us to help you publicize, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all down for being there for the listeners. So, um, just uh, let me know what uh, what we can do, and we'll we'll help. That would be that would be amazing. Thank you so much for the uh, for the call, the opportunity to speak to you. Um, I wow, thanks a lot. All right, I just demand doing backup vocals when you do your final album. But anyway, that's a different situation. <laughs> but you will. You see, I got it. Anyway, okay. So, uh, Mike, who do we have for the last call? All right, up next is Sven, and Sven wrote it and said, "In my own history, I have overcome a serious drug addiction. Given that I'm prone to addictive behavior, how do I know that my obsession with philosophy is healthy?" <laughs> well, you see, you're kind of poisoning the well there, Sven, by using the word obsession. <laughs> I I yeah. wrote the summary. I wrote the summary, so that's not exactly his words, but that's a, a summary of it, yes. Mike, you transposing back. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. <laughs> Just trying to get trying to get people in trouble now. <laughs> no, would you say it's an obsession, Sven? Um yeah, I think so. Uh, and firstly I okay, want to ask How would you um, characterize that? How would you know? Well, do I wait, do I have an obsession with philosophy? Um, I, I think so. I think it's it's. But the question is if it, if it's healthy or not. I guess. Well, no. If if it's an obsession, I think by definition it's not healthy, right? Because that's a a desire beyond reason and uh, health, right? Well, that's sort of tautological. But uh, I think I don't think there's many people who would say that. Like, if you say I'm obsessed with my ex girlfriend, how many people say that sounds great? Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a, a bit a bit lost now because I was hoping to give a bit of feedback on the first time I called in to the show. 
um, mm-hmm. before we get into the question. Is that okay? Yeah, whatever you like. Yeah. Um, because uh, we were on a show called uh, Commitment Kills Procrastination. I was the Sven from Australia. I don't know how good your memory is for like past shows. That was about nine months ago. Uh, yeah. I think I remember, but go ahead. Um, yeah, it was because my partner and I, we'd started our new business and I was well procrastinating on throwing myself into that. So yeah, I just wanted to let you know, like I'm sitting in the office of our factory now. We signed a three-year <sighs> list, at least, so that's pretty committed. Um, we've got distribution and our website will be up soon and I wanted to um, pimp that and also a little offer for FDR listeners that there's like a 10% um, discount coupon if you use the... Um, code FDR1337, um, and that's activeearthfood.com.au. So, yeah. 1337 lead. Is that lead, that's, right? FDR lead. Oh, yeah. You know it. Okay. 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 Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, that, what's that, the website? Uh, Active Earth Food. A C T I V E A R T H F O D.com.au. It's not quite live yet. We're sorting out PayPal integration, but by the time this is released on YouTube, it'll be live. And the discount coupon for FDR listeners is FDR1337. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you um, very much. We'll, uh, we'll help with that too. But, uh, okay, go ahead. So, yeah. Um, and the other big commitment that I wanted to mention as well is um, my partner's pregnant, so I'm going to be a dad. Um, so, yeah, that's very exciting. Um, and Well, congratulations. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the feedback that I wanted to give about the call is because um, it was about my, my workaholic dad pretty much it sort of focused around. And you pointed out that workaholism is just another form of procrastination. I mean, you're procrastinating on love, right? Um, so I just wanted to tell a little story because um, yeah, it was interesting to me. My, my sister was over at my parents' place and she texted me like in the middle of the night pretty much and I had to come basically rescue her because she got in this situation with mum and dad standing over her and kind of aggressive and upsetting to her. And this was sort of the first um, full family discussion about history that we'd had. And the topic got around to sort of spanking and stuff. And um, my dad, he was trying to sort of defend his position, I guess. And he got up and sort of stood over me and took like this little swing at me like and gave me a little tap on the cheek to say like, you know, this, this is all it was and, you know, no big deal. And yeah, in the moment that he did that, I just got this full body reaction. I don't know if it was a adrenaline rush or something like that, but um, I kind of just, I lost it at him, you know, and um, I got my, my voice was raised and I was really angry and I told him exactly what I think about hitting children. And um, yeah, it was really weird because I was, it was like I was totally calm inside and watching this happen, but I was really assertive and like, I guess almost angry on the outside. But I think it was the first time I had um, valid reasons for my anger and I had the words to express it. And I just found it really interesting how calm I was inside, even though I was so emotional and, you know, assertive on the outside and that conversation. And, you know, they, they also listened to our podcast and it sort of really opened up, like truth is the standard now in our family relationship. And yeah, so that was just the feedback I wanted to give. Fantastic. I thought it was interesting you said I lost it. It sounds like you found it, brother. So uh, good yeah. for you. Good yeah. for you. It was Congratulations. Awesome. And please do thank your parents for you know listening and uh, being open to the feedback. Uh, I mean, oh, that's really tough. You know, as parents, it's, it's, it's incredibly raw to be criticized by your own children. 
and yeah. uh, should I ever encounter it? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but no, it's 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 really one of the tough spots. So good for them. Good for them. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Thank you. Um. On yeah. Onto my question about like the obsession thing. I guess um because I've I've been reading um in the realm of hungry ghost as well, and he talks about addiction and obsession, and I guess there's negative parts to it because. I mean, I, I, for instance, I post these things on Facebook. Like I happen to be reading Atlas Shrugged again and there's a lot of quotable lines in that and, you know, post them to Facebook and just the arguments that you get, I mean, you understand. And But I have this real, you know, I, I'm debative streak to me and I don't know if I'm I'm addicted to just arguing my point or or being right or something like that. Um, if that makes sense. Why do you think you do it? Why do you post these things um it's not a criticism or i'm just genuinely curious right i mean everybody has different motives for stuff and what's well look i mean i, I sort of wanted to jokingly start this call with like you know hi my name's Sven and i am an addict you know and i'm, I'm it's like i'm yeah, addicted yeah. i'm addicted to to the fdr podcast i'll come into work on a monday morning and if i see like an a four-hour podcast that will be just the greatest thing because i'll be in the kitchen working and i can listen to a four hour podcast and then just get to the end of it and go, well, I'll start listening again. You know, I, I literally can't get enough of this stuff. And I think it's because I didn't have a strong bond with this father, my, my own father. And like, he was supposed to be the truth teller in my life as a child. And since my early twenties, I'm 33 now, like I've always had these male guru role model figures that I would just devour all their, um, audio content, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so yeah. Well, except this one did not render you impotent, right? This one has rendered you potent, right? Uh, your conversation, the FDR. Yeah, I mean the the, the shows uh, with regards to your business, with regards to your father, right? Oh, yeah, that's why I listen voice, to it. You yeah. um, you acted and so on, right? Like I think a guru is generally I, I always associate that with somebody who uh, diminishes other people's energy, you know? Right. I, mean, I think the people I listened to were genuinely, you know, they, they'd found a truth and they wanted to share it. I think it was, you know, good intentions. I mean, it started, it started with Tony Robbins, you know, someone handed me one of his um, lecture series and, you know, I just, I, I have the impulse to say I listened to it religiously or obsessively. And I think in a way that's, that's the only way to really achieve something is to like do it 110%, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's true. I mean, if you find that someone is giving you compelling value and stimulating you to excellence in a particular field, then to me, that's like saying, well, I found the best. I, I want to be fantastic at karate. I have found the best teacher, and so I'm going to practice every day. I mean, who would say that that's bad? I mean, if that's your goal and you found a great teacher – wouldn't you want to absorb as much knowledge as you could to to achieve excellence in the field? Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to do. Um, yeah, so is that obsessive? I don't know. I mean, that's basically saying that all excellence is obsessive. I I, I don't feel comfortable with that myself. Right. Okay. I mean, it, it must be something. I mean, I wouldn't if I had more conversation like this in my my own life, like I guess I wouldn't need to listen to you know six plus hours of FDR a day. So I mean, I'm I'm trying to. I, I don't know any other way to draw those sorts of people to me, but to keep you know 
being being rabid for truth, like you know, in whoever I meet or on in social media or whatever. And even if ninety nine point nine percent of the people just you know ridicule, and you know, there's got to be someone out there that 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 will listen. No, I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. I mean, you, you're sending out flares, I would assume, to find people who are capable of thought. Yeah. I was watching um, an episode of uh, Sherlock. And um, in it, they mentioned something about Ayn Rand. It's the usual, oh, she was high priestess of the philosophically ignorant or something like that. You know, again, no argument, no analysis of her work, no rebuttal of her arguments or anything. It's like, well, you know, she died on Social Security. She's a hypocrite, man. She smoked. She's a God almighty. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous and exhausting. And um, uh, it is, uh, I mean, futile. And, And I mean, the sad thing is, is that these people, they just, they try to gain popularity in the moment. And generally the reason that people put down Ayn Rand is because women don't like her. And, um, uh, and mostly that's, that's the case. Like, I mean, uh, and so to please women and to gain access to the eggs, other people, oh yeah, I hate that Ayn Rand too. Can we have sex now that we've established that? It's okay. Uh, and um, yeah, so I mean, you, you're shooting up these flares so to find out whether people can think or not, right? And, and most people can't and don't know it. And so you you keep moving so that you can have these kinds of conversations in your life. Does that does that sort of make sense? Yeah, and I I know what you mean. With it's exhausting because I'll I'll you know post something about you know what is morality and the amount of like just total subjectivist relativist stuff. Like people can't even agree that like a a real universe exists. And oh, it's it's just yeah, it blows my mind. Hey, and. I know I don't have Yeah, they 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 can't they can't they can't they can't figure out whether anything is true, but they can sure figure out that Ayn Rand was false. It's like, yeah. oh come on. I mean, please, can you can you make it a slight challenge for me to dismiss you? Come on, give me a little subtlety. I mean, basically it's like getting into a ring and somebody you know, like you're gonna have a great box, you've been training for a while, and then somebody just fucking chloroforms themselves and falls over. It's like well, this is sort of pointless. What the hell was the point of that? Come on, you can throw a punch or two. I mean, just yeah. beat yourself yes. up and pu- make yourself pass out. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Yesterday, I posted the question, like, um, non. Well, the quote from Ayn Rand about you know non contradictions cannot exist, and I mean, people come back with this quantum stuff, like Schrodinger's cat exists and doesn't exist at the same time, and I'm like, God, like you don't even you can't even say whether or not reality exists, but you're trying to tell me you know what is right and wrong and there's this thing in in Atlas Shrugged, and I, I sort of struggle with the book because all those characters who are like the negative parts, and I find it so hard to read, you know, because they're just, um, you know, like logical absurdity after logical absurdity, like the Jim Taggart and um, oh, yeah, yeah. Wesley Mooch and stuff. And that's the frustration I feel, you know, with people all the time. And I don't know, like am I in that, that middle zone of philosophy – where I've seen the truth now, and when do I get to the point where I have you know philosophical people in my life, or when does it stop getting frustrating? I mean, are you still frustrated? Um, I think I think amused. I mean, I hate to sound overly sophisticated, like oh, the little people just amuse me, but I do find it mostly amusing because it's just so patently obvious, 
and the, literally the people don't know just how foolish they look, how how absolutely ridiculous they seem. Like, okay, so let me give you an example, right? So one of the big criticisms of um, uh, Rand is that uh, the, the female heroines, they some, some of them like rough sex, right? Now, first of all, how prudish and Victorian can you be, right? So they like rough sex. Okay. <laughs> faint. I must faint. <laughs> you know, good heavens, you know. Um, and none of that's really – Have you heard about this um, – sorry? That stuff sort of like even implied in the book. It's not like it's explicit overly rough sex, you know, like she's writing in the 1920s or whatever. So – well, and, and also, I mean, that there's, there's, you know, there's lots of biological evidence that a lot of female apes like rough sex. So, in certain uh, ape species, the the females will provoke the man, the the male, right? Will provoke the male chimpanzee until the chimpanzee is about to physically assault them, and then they will offer him her vagina. Classy. Right, because they want the most aggressive, bloody, bloody, blah. Right, so the the fact that that hominids like rough sex is not confined <laughs> to the pages of uh, Atlas Shrugged. Uh, in fact, nine and a half weeks. But anyway, so have you heard of this guy, Jeremy Meeks, by chance? Yeah, that name rings a bell. I'm not sure where I'm from. Yeah, so uh, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Meeks is this guy who is uh, – his mugshot was put out. Um, I don't know how or why. Uh, and I guess he's considered a pretty good-looking guy. Now, he's got a t- little tattooed tear, which I think means that he's performed some horrible act for some criminal gang, and he's served – he's accused of 11 felonies, and he's been held on a $900,000 bond, and he's been liked on Facebook more than 100,000 times, and he just got uh, offered a, a modeling contract. Um, so – He's being held on charges that include street terrorism, felony weapons charges, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he served quite some time in jail before. So, you know, a pretty dangerous guy, I assume, right? I mean, based upon what is being said. But women are going mental over him. You know, the fact that uh, convicted serial killers receive love letters in jail, marriage proposals, uh, and so on, uh, and this guy who uh, seems to have a pretty criminal and heavy duty past is um become a complete viral sensation because women find him attractive you know but but you know the big problem is that there's some some rough sex in that the short you know it's just like it just have you not looked around that's anyway um but uh, yeah it is uh it is uh it is nonsense and and you know I will occasionally check YouTube comments. Uh, it's actually how I found this uh, one from the uh, um, from one, the mother of one of the victims of Elliot Roger. And uh, it is, uh, I mean, wearying not. I wouldn't find it wearying. I, I find it interesting. Um, and uh, when you have become really good at something, people's incompetence is not offensive, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like I'm, I'm really good at philosophy. I'm really good at self-knowledge. I'm really good at principles. I've still got a long way to go. Trust me, I've still got a lot to learn, which is what keeps it so interesting for me. But when you become really good at something, then people's lack of skill at it is no longer offensive, right? So my daughter, uh, you know, when she was younger, she'd hit the 
xylophone randomly, right? And then she'd say, Daddy, do you like that? And I would say, no, not really. I said, you know, I'd show her how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or whatever, right? But I was not offended but that she was so bad at it and, and also that she didn't know how bad she was at it, right? Hmm. And that's how people are with philosophy. They, they haven't studied it. And if they have studied it, they've studied it in government schools, right? Which is like going to the DMV to learn about marketing, right? I mean, <laughs> wrong. you don't go to the government schools. You don't go to academics. You don't go to universities, for Christ's sake, to, to try and understand philosophy because their very existence is a violation of the non-aggression principle to begin with, right? Oh, tenured professor, teach me about the virtue of freedom and voluntarism <laughs> as you work three or four hours a week for – $150,000 or more a year uh, because you get to hand out state certificates that grant other people entrance to this palace of blood-soaked riches that you currently enjoy. Please tell me all about virtue. No. They all study Socrates, but they don't want to, as I do, live like Socrates, right? I mean, the academics uh, will all say, well, Socrates, you see, is the founder of philosophy. And what he did, you see, was he went to the marketplace and he talked to people about philosophical ideas that were of value to them and actually changed their lives in a very real way. He was not part of any academic circles. He certainly did not have tenure. He didn't have any benefits. He certainly didn't have the kinds of job protections that I enjoy. And he really risked a lot for his own personal values and to spread philosophy. And he's considered to be the foundations of philosophy. And if anybody ever suggested that I even remotely live by the per like by the values of the person who founded yeah. the entire discipline I profit from, I would consider them completely insane. I want to lecture other people who are going to get a hold of government certificates like I have so that we can milk money of the taxpayers and drive the economy off a cliff while all proclaiming about how virtuous we are. Right. Right. So they this is the reality that, that – yeah, I mean I, I'm the guy living like Socrates. I'm out there in the marketplace talking to you, to, talking to other people and saying, will you buy me lunch if you find it valuable, right? Yeah. FDRURL.com slash donate. And so all of these academics <laughs> push their noses up at me while then going to teach Socrates <laughs> to their students. And again, it's, <laughs> it's just so hilarious when yeah, you see know, it right. clearly. It is absolutely, completely and totally so insane. I, I think I might – I must still be too emotionally invested in these arguments because I get – I get a physiological response, you know, I get like tightness in the chest and sort of excited or anxious. And, you know, if I'm making an argument in one of these, you know, Facebook conversations and I think I'm too attached to having other people, you know, agree or, you know, actually just oh, think, you know. Hey, dude, dude, you're talking to a philosopher. What are you saying things like too attached? I mean, what does that mean? Are you tied to something? No, no. It means that you're not being empirical. Okay. How long have you been talking ideas with people? Uh, you know, since I was a teenager, I think. Okay. So 15 years? Yeah, easily. Okay. Let's just, could be 20. Let's just say 15 years. Okay. Roughly, right? This is back of the napkin shit, right? Roughly how many people have you talked to about ideas? Uh, in, in a thousand maybe. All right. Of those thousand people, how many have you found – to be genuinely curious, generally open, genuinely open to rational arguments yeah. and of high quality in their capacity to acquire knowledge. Like five. <laughs> okay. Five. Oh, and I think yeah. that's probably about right. All right? Yeah. Okay. 
so, right? What are we uh, What are we talking about? What ratio, right? So you're looking for five people in a thousand, right? Yeah. Now I think that's that's pretty good, right? That's half a percent, right? One yep. one person in every two hundred people, one out of every two hundred people. Now. Are you have you recognized that statistic? Have you absorbed and accepted it? Um, Are you empirical yeah. with your experience? Yeah, I know that. I know that. I, I, I yeah, I have. No, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you haven't. Because if you recognize that it's one in two hundred people who are going to be reasonable, right? who are going to be able to dedicate themselves to truth and evidence, even against emotional self-interest in the moment. If you have recognized that, then you will not get excited when you're having a conversation. Yeah, I think it would be more like when I got angry with my dad, I was I was calm inside, but I could still be assertive. Um no, 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 God. <laughs> okay. If only one half of 1%, I don't know how to put this. Um, the, the purpose is to discard, right? Yeah. Your purpose, your purpose in the Facebook conversations, logically, must be to discard, Right. Yep. To get away from and stop wasting your goddamn time with the 199 people who will attack thought and find the one person who won't. Mm. Your purpose is discard, 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 right? You know this, right? Listen, you're a businessman. Do you do sales? Yep. Okay. Your purpose as a salesperson is to f get out of the conversations with people who won't buy as quickly as humanly possible so that you can get to the people who will buy, right? Sure. Yeah. You understand that, right? And most yeah. people won't buy from you, right? Yep. And so it's the same thing when you're floating thought bubbles in the world. Discard, discard, discard. Discard, discard, discard. Hmm. And people will tell you, if you're honest and open with them, people will tell you almost immediately whether or not they have the capacity to think. Oh, sure. Right? So why are you getting excited? Um, you get excited when you meet the one person. Yeah, I understand that. But I'm not sure why you'd get excited with all the other people. Yeah, I mean, I get excited having real conversations. You know, like I, I get – like it's passion. And no, you get you're it. not having real – no, no, no. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Look, dude, you're not having real conversations if you're not being empirical. If your fantasy – is, is is occluding the other person's truth, the other person's reality from you. 
you're not having real conversations. In other words, if you're pretending that people can think who can't think, that is not a real conversation. That's literally like me, who doesn't speak Mandarin, talking to somebody who speaks Mandarin and doesn't speak English, and we're both making syllable noises. <laughs> we're both making syllable noises with our eating holes, and then saying, "Well, we're having a real conversation." It's like, nope, we're not. We are not even speaking the same language. And when there's like glimmers of thought that you see in some of the responses, I mean, I got to, I mean, I've got to try to encourage those and cultivate them so I keep coming back to the conversation. No, nope. and- no, no, no. Listen, some Mandarin words sound like English, right? Yeah. Right. Phonetically, yeah. yeah. Yeah, phonetically. And I'm sure that there are some Mandarin words that by coincidence both sound like and mean the same as an English word, right? Sure, sure. Does that mean that I continue to speaking to people in English in the hopes that these coincidences are going to increase? Oh, it's like they're accidentally right, but they don't have principles. And, right. Yeah. And you will get these glimmers. I remember dating a woman in high school. Uh, not the smartest cookie, and I remember once or twice, though, she said something pretty smart. And I was, I was holding on to those, right? Right, but shit. I said, I'm going to university. What are you doing? Well, I'm not going to university. Community college? Oh, no. No, she knew her limitations, right? She was not, not smart. She wasn't dumb, but she wasn't smart. Doesn't mean she never said anything smart. Right? Even a broken even a broken clock is right twice a day. But she's just not smart, right? Yep. If I play piano randomly every now and then, I'm going to produce a pleasing sound. It doesn't mean I'm learning piano, right? Sure. And people can occasionally say things that are very smart. But this is not like a, a little fire that you need to blow and protect and get the embers. Right? It, it, let me ask you this. When you were first exposed to critical thinking... What happened? Angels sang. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what excellence is. Right? That's, that's what excellence uh, is. Like you can't miss it. When you, when you talk, yeah, when you talk to people who play an instrument, they're like, oh, man, the first time I picked up this instrument, I felt like it completed my body, you know? Yeah. Like they love it. They had to have it, Right. First time I met my wife, um, first time we had a conversation, that was it. You know, we spent one day apart, and then we spent every day together until we got married 11 months later, and we spent almost every day together since, and it's just a blessing and a privilege and gets better all the time. I like that with my partner too. Right. So you want to keep finding people who ignite when lit up with reason. Not people who you kind of have to coax and bully and, and wheedle and cajole and, you know, because basically it's whining. Come on, be rational, be logical, you'll be happier, I'll be happier, the world will be a better place. Come on, guys, yeah. think, right? I get, I get that no, way no, you're no. sharing your, your podcast and stuff, like just please try listening to this. And there's sort of that thing with like I, I love it so much and part of me can't even – like comprehend how someone could not not love it you know um yeah i know i get i hey you know i understand but but the reality is that we have to be empiricists right sure sure. 
which means we just we go with the facts as they have presented themselves, particularly when we've had a lot of experience, right? Yeah. And the and facts I, are that most people really dislike thinking. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not that it's hard. No, it's not, it's not people hard do yeah, right. people do lots of people do lots of things that it's hard. Um you know, boy, you think <laughs> think not thinking is if you think thinking is hard, try not thinking, right? Yeah, I, I shouldn't have said that. That was just an automatic thing. It's not it's not hard for me. I no, it's it. it's a defense, right? Yeah. No, I mean playing guitar is hard, lots of people do it, right? Um, so do you have like a lot of close friends? Cause like, you know, when you say, cause I mean, I could count them on one hand, you know, people that I can actually talk to and share stuff and be myself around. I do not have a lot of close friends. Hmm. In yeah, fact, the philosophy I, would seems to be that, a lonely I would consider that an impossibility. The cult of friendship uh, it disturbs me. Uh, I, I mean, sorry for the rant, and I'll just try and keep this brief. But the cult of friendship bothers me. Like when you you hear people say, "I don't have a lot of close friends." What do you think? Loser. Um, yeah. What's not to like about you? <laughs> no, no. But I mean, no. When you when you not when you hear me, but when you hear people say, "Oh, I don't I don't have a lot of close friends," what do you hear? Um. Well, you you must not be very likable. Or- like there must, yeah. be, there must be a reason. Unpleasant, nasty, right? Bad person, right? Don't uh, – the, 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 we're supposed to be measured. Our, our quality is supposed to be measured by the number of friends we have. Whereas for me, it's quite the inverse. When somebody says, I'm friends with everyone, I just assume they have the spine of your average jellyfish and the integrity of your average soap dish. I have tons of close friends. It's like, okay, then you obviously have no standards. I've slept with lots of people. Good. I will shake your hand from inside this hazmat suit, right? (laughs) And I I sort of, my my daughter's kind of, you know, friends. You see these fucking kids programs. What is this all about? Friends, friends. We got to have friends. Friends are everything. I've got pony friends. I've got dinosaur friends. We go see things on a train. It's all friends. Friends, if you don't have friends, you're nothing. I don't have anything in isolation. It's all about friends. I have nothing. I do not exist, but I can see in the mirror of my friend's eyes that I do. It's all about friendship. Friends, got to have friends. Friendship is everything. I've got pony friends, right? I mean, it's not good. It's not good. I don't like it. Yeah. It's like you, you, you have to have friends or you're nothing. And you've got to have lots of friends. And the more friends you have, the more value you have. But given that most people are of extremely low quality, the more friends you have, the lower quality you are. Right? I mean, that's yeah. just that's logical, right? That's just basic logic, right? If most people are of low quality, the more friends you have, most likely, the low, right? The, the worst quality of person you are. Because you got to do lowest common denominator shit, right? And so this is why the cult of friendship is, is proposed and put forward so much and so insistently. Got to have friends. Don't have a lot of friends. Loser. Unlikable. Bad person. Right? Low status. 
right? This is a way of forcing us to lower our standards to fit in, right? The fuck do I need all these friends for? I mean, dear God, who has time? <laughs> who has time for all these friends? You know, um, uh, friends is, uh, I mean, it's just having warm bodies to dance around when you're young. Uh, when you get older, uh, you know, my wife is a great friend. Mike and his wife are great friends of a couple other people that I know, good friends. But God, I, I mean, well, I have 20 close friends. No, you don't. Yeah, <laughs> because there's only so the many day. hours of the day. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I said the same thing. There's not enough hours in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have 20 close friends. Then you have no ambitions. <laughs> right? You're not pursuing excellence in anything. So... No, I, I, um, I mean, I've, I won't get into all of the details, but you read these biographies of people, and they're like, oh, and then I went here with this friend, and I went here with this friend, I went there with that friend, and then my kids grew up, and they didn't, you know, they complained they didn't really know me at all. It's like, well, yeah, because you had friends, right? You had children, you preferred friends, and, uh, you know, divorce, uh, you know, in divorce, you know. Well, it's because you didn't work on your main friendship. You didn't work on your primary friendship. No, fuck friendship. I'm sorry. I mean, I hate to be... I mean, again, I, I love my friends. They love me back. But I am a big fan of quality over quantity. And this cult of friendship bugs the shit out of me. I mean, everybody wants to look at their life like it's a beer commercial they can just climb into. Look, my friends are all underdressed. We're dancing around a pool. Ha, 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 Look, we jumped off the roof of the house into the pool. Wasn't that cool? And friendship, the larger the circle of friends, the more alcohol is involved. <laughs> to blind yourself to the fact that you can't stand most of these assholes. The larger the circle of friends, the more cultural or religious bullshit is involved. To remind yourself that you have nothing in common with these people other than your shared delusions. If you really seek the truth, discard, 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 discard. The whole point of any discipline is knowing where not to look, right? I mean, if you are a good paleontologist, you're not spending a lot of your fucking time in the North Pole, right? Or on a cruise ship, right? Or on the moon. Hey, my expertise is knowing where not to look, right? When I got a tumor removed from my throat, I didn't want them cutting into my feet, right? Or my car, right? Or my pet. <laughs> Just, I need you to know where to cut. Not where, and the whole point, everywhere you don't want to cut, don't cut there. So you know where to cut. Yeah, I get when it. When I was uh, working uh, as a gold panner and prospector for a company uh, after high school, there was a theory, right, which was that the glaciers had smeared the gold. We found the gold, found the glacial patterns. We were trying to look back to where the gold source was. It's a good theory. It's a good theory. So the whole point was don't look anywhere else except where you find gold back up the glacier path. Right? We, we didn't look in a mall, right? There ain't no coup de ville hiding in the bottom of a Cracker Jack box, 
right? I mean, you'll never dig for oil on a sandy beach. Don't, right? The whole point of, of becoming an expert in something is knowing where not to look. Discard, 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 right? I mean, if you are a, a, a if you're a proofer, if you're sorry, if you're a script reader, what 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 do you spend most of your time doing? Reading scripts and going, God, that's terrible. Yeah, fuck no, right? Oh God, oh that's terrible. <laughs> Jaws meets American Beauty. I don't want to see any nymphs get eaten by sharks, right? So, I mean, the whole point is discard, discard, discard. That's 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 the whole point of expertise. You know, if you're Simon Cowell, the whole point is you say no to just about everyone, and then you say yes to the final winner, I guess, or the audience does, right? But American Idol, they get, what, 20,000 auditions, and they say no to all but, I don't know, 20? I don't know how many start with American Idol. But it's saying no, no. The whole point of expertise is you say no, <laughs> no to people. It's like that old Steve Martin routine where he says the whole point about getting older is you develop prejudices because you've done stuff before. And people say – so the whole point is you're closing a series of corridors when you get older and people say, hey, let's go camping. <laughs> Sorry, we're closed, right? Because we've all done right. that before. Right. We don't it's, fucking it's like it. It's very rare. I, I, I get it. Do you, do you still see any value in like in debating just, be, just to learn how to debate and to practice um, arguing? I'm I'm not sure that I need to learn how to debate. I mean, if I don't know how to do it by now, I'm retarded no, no, no. and I should not be like, doing this. But with me on my on my Facebook, for instance, and I was I was way too promiscuous in adding adding no, friends. So no, no, like, no. It's like saying, would you would you like to like? Is it is is there any point? I'm an expert musician who's been practicing for 15 years. Is there any point me doing a duet with uh, somebody who's got a pair of spoons and no legs? Five year old. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's not a debate if they don't know how to think. It's an insult to debating to debate most people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like getting Placido Domingo to to warble along with some guy who's got a robot voice where the cancer made a hole in his throat. It's not a duet. It's an insult to singing. Yeah, so... Yeah, if you've become an expert in something... You need to value your own expertise. So a book that I read when I was, I don't know, maybe 20 or 21, when I was first at the National Theatre School of Canada was a book called Respect for Acting by Uta Hagen, I think her name was. And it basically was saying, look, acting is a skill and it's a talent. And it's not, sort of not just a talent, it's a skill. And it's a skill that you can be trained in, that you can learn. Uh, but it's you don't just sort of walk off the street and and act and so on, right? And it was sort of my first brush with the the, the problems of the idea of, of talent. And I think it could be the case that human beings have some instincts for talent. Sorry, shit, let me start this again. It could be the case that human beings have some instincts for thinking. I think that's true. I mean, certainly in my limited experience of you know, working in a daycare, having lots of kids around and being a father, kids do have some good instincts for thinking. They're good at identifying contradictions. They're good at thinking. As far as abstract reasoning from first principles, I've yet to see a huge amount of evidence from, uh, uh, with regards to that, with regards to my own daughter. Again, I'm keeping my eyes open. I certainly don't want to impose 
thinking on my daughter because you can't impose thinking, right? But to, to really be able to think critically, to really be able to think, it takes a lot of study, right? You can't provoke it in a Facebook debate. You can't just kind of make it happen. Now, it could be that you show someone what critical thinking looks like and they get very excited about it and then want to study it, right? Yeah. That, that could try- happen. I'm trying to demonstrate it in the Facebook conversations. Okay. Well, but you get excited, which means that you are not recognizing reality. It means you have inappropriate hope. And if there's one thing that philosophy is really good at, it's crushing inappropriate hope. (laughs) No, it is. It's absolutely essential because you need to know where not to look, which means give up. Give up your hope. Give up your hope. Be empirical. Empiricism is the opposite of hope. Hope is that which we have in the absence or in direct opposition to empiricism. It is the faith of the thinker. It's called hope. And it's as irrational as religious faith. Yeah. Right? Hope must be crushed because we are empiricists. And where you are an empiricist, you don't have hope, right? You buy, you buy a man's services to build you a house. And he says, oh, I, I hope this stands. How do you feel? Oh, no. I want you to know that it stands. I'm not paying you for hope. <laughs> you chiseling, cheating bastard, right? I'm not paying you for hope. You know, FedEx comes to pick up a package. They say, hey, hope this gets there. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I don't want any hope. Don't give me your hope. I don't want, I'm not paying you for hope, right? <laughs> Hope I don't cut your artery. <laughs> no, don't hope if you're hoping I need to find somebody else, right? Hope must, inappropriate hope must be killed. And it must be killed under the giant dinosaur foot of empirical evidence, right? Yeah. Right? Kill inappropriate hope. Now, that, and hope is fine, like, in, hope as a whole. Uh, I hope I meet someone nice. Well, that's sort of the expression of desire, right? But it's sort of like saying, I hope, I'm a, I hope I can learn guitar. Okay, Just now go learn guitar, right? Hope yeah. is nothing other than the expression of a desire, right? Right. And then if people don't do anything to achieve that desire, then it's a mad delusion and a huge waste of everyone's time, right? Yeah. So, no, no, no. Philosophy, you know, get rid of hope. Get rid of hope. Right? Because the moment you've expressed a hope, you either translate it into tangible action or shut up about it. Right? Mike, have you ever heard – hang on. I'm trying to think if I can phrase this in a way that's going to get through to you. Have you ever heard of people who would like to work for Free Domain Radio. Oh, God, stuff. Don't do this to me. No, no. Don't do let's this bring it me. all out. Come on. Come on. Let's bring it all out. Don't hide on me now, brother. My connection's getting bad. I don't know if I can. Have you ever heard of people who would really like to work for Free Domain Radio? I have on occasion gotten those emails after we talk about it on the show like this. Yes. Right. Now, how good are people at translating their hope or their desire into working for Free Domain Radio? 
with one exception, not good. Not good. Not good. You over diplomatic, <laughs> hypocritical son of a bitch. Fucking terrible. Okay. They're fucking terrible. They're terrible. Terrible. I'm telling you this. If I had been like, hey, Ayn Rand is looking for someone to work with her, I'd be like, okay, move any mountain, go live in her basement, go live in the woods near her house. I'm there. I like whatever she needs. And I would sweat bullets to do the very best job the first time I handed something over to her to impress her. Like, I'd just be like dying, right? Oh, yeah. Well, God, that's what I did with you. Yeah. And so, you you know, you give people assignments saying, hey, you know, we'd, you know, we'll pay, but, you know, we need you to do some research on this. And they're like, here, I made some doodles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so would, would you say a better word than obsession is, you know, like just committed, you know, like to not have that negative connotation to it? I'm sorry, what now? Well, I mean, it, what what you were just saying about Ayn Rand, like, you know, you could characterize that as like you're you're obsessed with going and, you know, working with Ayn Rand, but like maybe a better word oh, to not God. have the next. I mean, since when did just doing a good job become obsession? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, why why would you use such a term? Yeah. Well, you're committed to excellence. I mean, I don't, I don't care. I like, uh, the guy who cut my neck, it's like. I did just do a fucking good job. I don't obsessed with the surgery. And I mean, what the hell does that even mean? Are you good at what you do? Yeah. Yes or no. If you're good at what you do, I mean, I, I thank you. Right. I, I don't know that obsession needs to be right. You are very interested in philosophy. And you know it's going to take about 10,000 hours to get really good at philosophy. Do you have the goal of being really good at philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. Right. You know it's going to take you, give or take, roughly about 10,000 hours, right? Yep. Okay, so you have a goal and you are in pursuit of that goal. Why does any emotionally charged term need to come into it? I want to drive to San Francisco. It's going to take me five days. I better leave now. Oh, you're just obsessed with getting to San Francisco. <laughs> No, I want to get to San Francisco. It's going to take me five days. I need to leave now. You're obsessed. What? Yeah. I want well, to go to San Francisco. The reason, you understand, right? Yeah, obsession and addiction as well is I got to be wary of it because I have had a history with that. So that's why. Well, but your addiction is to the word addiction. <laughs> <laughs> your obsession is with the word obsession. You have a goal. And you're going to pursue it, right? I want to become a doctor. I'm going to medical school. You're obsessed with medicine. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, actually, I just connected I, with something. I really and... want to paint this wall. You're obsessed with color. What? Yeah. I'm going to paint the wall. i got to go buy some paint. Well, no, I, ha I had a connection just now because, I mean, it's, it's not my word. You know, this is obsession is what other people have called what I'm doing as I've. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know. Obsession I is what people Obsession is the word that people use who are addicted to mediocrity with regards to people who want to achieve excellence. Uh, it's their way of saying that excellence is a mental health problem. These same motherfuckers, frankly though, if there's one goddamn pixel that's burnt out on their TV screen, they will bring it back. Mm. Right? So they desperately need and want and punish anyone who's not excellent in the shit that they really like. 
right? My internet was down for two hours this year. Bastards, I'm getting a refund for that whole month, right? Yeah. Well, that excellence in the service of their shit, well, that's just, that's what they expect as customers, right? <laughs> but excellence in the pursuit of anything that makes them uncomfortable, well, by God, by God, that's just obsessive. Yeah, right. You okay. see, this is, this is the bullshit that people say. This is what I was saying about earlier. It's complete bullshit. Obsessive has zero philosophical content. Sure, sure. It's what frightened people do when the thought bunny hops over them when they're napping, which is their entire fucking life. Oh, I got startled. Obsession. Cult. Bad. Ooh. Devil. Boo. Right? Well, thank you for your contribution. No. That sounded like my Facebook along. conversations. Right? <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, if you are in hot pursuit of excellence, that threatens other people's complacency. They're just going to give you ad hominems. Right? You know, I've really struggled to clarify my own opinions, and I owe the truth enough integrity and responsibility to defend it to the best of my abilities. Oh, you're just obsessed with being right. Okay. <laughs> I don't, I mean, what is that? I don't know what that means. Compared to what? Yeah. Yeah, that was the gold. I wasn't precise in using that word. Well, you were very precise in that it was a word that people use against you, right? I didn't recognize that it was someone else's word or other people's word. Yeah. You, uh, I've never been in a car accident. You're just obsessed with good driving. <laughs> okay. Fuck, I mean, sorry. Just discard, discard, discard. See, I mean, the difference with the philosophy and that the philosophy is a very, very singular discipline this way. Right? So... Most people will accept that they're not that great at physics, right? Yeah. And so what? What does that what does that change in their lives, right? Not much. Right? I I'm not a very competent <laughs> mathematician. I'm not even a remotely competent mathematician. I'm okay at some basic math, but I'm just not good at math, right? And what 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 effect does that have in my life? Well nothing. Because I'm obsessed at keeping math at bay, right? No, but it doesn't have much effect on my life. Now, the problem is, though, with philosophy, well, that has huge effects on people's life, right? Philosophers cock block self-righteousness. <laughs> they do. We, we fuck up self-righteousness. And self-congratulatory, hypocritical, pseudo-moralization, right? Yep. And so if people – yeah, look, if you, if you take away people's drug, their morphine drip, their heroin high of self-righteousness, I mean most of them won't even want to get out of fucking bed in the morning. Wait, I have to face a day where I can't be morally righteous about anything? Where I can't get mad at Obama or, or Hillary or – Romney or complain about the immigrants or 
you know, taxes. I can't, I can't be morally self-righteous. Fuck me. I'm not getting out of bed. I mean, people are like these hollow, empty, straw-cased monkeys propped up on the helium farts of self-righteousness. You turn off that spigot, they just fucking collapse. It's like dialing up the gravity to 11. Right? And philosophy takes away self-righteousness. It takes away moral pomposity. It takes away self-congratulatory bullshit and the self-praise of considering yourself a moral person when you have no fucking rational clue what morality is. And it's the same in Socrates' day as it is now. Why do they kill philosophers? Because philosophers kill everything about them that they think they know. Kills every piece of identity that they think they have. You know, the second-handers, the Wesley Mooches, the Taggarts, right? And it, it's a war to the death between philosophers and what T.S. Eliot called the hollow men, had pieces filled with straw, alas. And philosophy exposes ignorance. People build their personalities on ignorance. And therefore, philosophy is a form of soulless murder to the ignorant and therefore the self-congratulatory. Right? Do you understand? Yeah. And so the reason that you get thrilled is just as you used other people's words like obsession for your pursuit of moral excellence and knowledge, the reason you get thrilled, my friend, is because other people are thrilled that they suckered you into giving them brains to eat so they can live another day. They suckered you into pretending that there was a capacity for a debate with people who have no clue how to think and react to any clear thought with fear and aggression, who are the enemies of thought. It's their thrill, their excitement, their relief, their desire that you engage. Because if you engage with them, they can pretend that they're thinking. Right? <laughs> you animate the dead... And call yourself surrounded by people. You're like somebody who's having a house party of hand puppets. Discard, discard, discard. That is the essence. Expertise is knowing where not to look. An expert geologist knows exactly where not to look for gold. And most of his knowledge is about where not to look. Archaeologists, you name it. Somebody who's really good at identifying a disease knows everything that he needs to not look at in order to see that disease. Scan here with this. Don't scan over there with anything else. When the dead can engage you as if they're living, they feel a massive relief from the walking corpse they call alive. Vampires drain the blood of the living in order to sustain themselves. There's a reason why those goddamn vampire movies and vampire shows are so popular these days is that the mentally destroyed and destroying those who have not just been harmed but are now harming have a desperate desire to engage with the thinking and to gain the respect of the thinking. And I say, don't enable the dead. 
Do not don't. enable the dead. Don't feed the trolls. Discard, discard, discard. Beam me up, Scotty. There's no signs of intelligent life here, right? Yeah. That's empiricism. Yeah, I think I'm feeling a bit, bit sad because it's, yeah, but that's just recognizing how lonely it will be. Oh my God, you're still, you're still missing the point. The loneliness is not in the future. The loneliness is in the past. You're not sad because of the future. You're sad because of the past. The loneliness was in the past. Hey, how great and connected did it feel to be engaging with all of these brain-dead trolls and idiots and anti-thinkers? Oh, it's frustrating as hell. On social media. It's frustrating as hell. Yeah. Does it, does it assuage loneliness? No, it just... <laughs> Makes me gnash my teeth and, yeah, no, no. Well, what it does is it keeps you in the land of the dead, right? Because every wise person who sees you engaging with the dead thinks of you as a delusory necromancer or an active necrophiliac, Right? <laughs> It keeps the good people away. And that's the price of dallying with the dead, is the living have to leave you behind. You go in the discard pile. It keeps you from connection. The sadness is about the past. It's not about the future. Right? If I said to you, you've been heading in the wrong direction, you've been driving in the wrong direction for four hours... Is your regret for the past or for the future? Uh, well, for the, for the past. Um, right. Fire. <laughs> Sorry, my mind was just elsewhere thinking no, about... tell me what you were thinking about. Well, just like, do I just cull these people from my Facebook? Like, I mean, it's not like I see any of these people in, in real life. Oh, but... you're not... Did you be listening to this show? Have I been listening to this show? From the beginning? Pretty much, man, yeah. And are you really going to stand right there right now and ask me to tell you what to do? No, I wasn't. I was. That was what I was thinking in my head. You know, that was, no. Right, no, so no, now you're saying, well, if you tell yourself what to do, if you try to jump to a conclusion based upon a new knowledge, if you try to make that new knowledge give you a domino of action – then it's better than if I tell you to do it. So if you internalize Sergeant Major philosophy as opposed to <laughs> making him me, that's somehow better. The point is not what you should do, right? Yeah. The point is what you need to accept. Sure, sure. At yeah. the most generous estimate, it's one person in 200. Yeah, yeah. One person in 200. Yeah, and I mean... The others are not indifferent, like, one person in 200 may want to learn Mandarin, but that doesn't mean that the other people hate Mandarin or think they speak it, right? One person out of 200 wants to really learn philosophy. The other nine, 199 people all think they know it and hate its actual manifestation and right. desperately need it so that they can 
be self-righteous so that they can vote, so they can dominate others, so they can beat their com- beat their conflicts with their wives or their husbands, so that they can hit their children, so they can yell at their children, so they can correct their children, so they can drag their children to church. People don't have a fucking clue what to do with their relationships if they don't have moral self-righteousness. That's a little different from I'm indifferent to learning Mandarin, right? Yeah. You take away false moral values from people, what are they going to do? Well, they get get angry. Of course. You're disassembling everything they know to be real. Let me just undo physics and send you to hell. Here I go. Ah! Shoot. Right? Bomb. Nuke him from orbit, right? Yeah. And, for I mean, people, and, and if people, I mean, particularly if people have been parents or if they've, they've bullied their, their relationships or bullied their wives or husbands or whatever, bullied their kids, you get people to admit that what they thought was true was not true, what they pretended they knew they did not know when it comes to virtue. Oh, my God. Imagine how many people the average 40-year-old has to apologize to if they've been morally self-righteous and bullying their whole adult life. Oh, yeah. They yeah. want to do that? Okay. I, I think the challenge for me is because I'm so passionate about these ideas, I'm still compelled to share them, but I've just got to recognize that it's not going to connect with, you know, 99.9% of the people out there. Well, you can accept, I mean, you get frustrated when people accept reality, reject reality, right? But you, yeah. by, by modeling this, you are rejecting reality. You've got to live yeah. your values. No, I know. Right? Yeah. It's bothering you what I'm saying, right? No, no, not at all. I, you sure? It's, okay. Yeah. <laughs> when you accept reality... It's very painful to other people because when you accept reality, you reject unreality and most people are unreal. Yep. They're, they're like the hero's sister in the glass menagerie, Laura. Right? She's got these little glass ornaments. She says, if you touch them, they break. Contact for people is non-existence. This is why they're so allergic to intimacy, to honesty, to openness, to truth. If you touch them, they break. Which is why the idea of having a lot of friends is like time travel. In the future, maybe we can have more. We still only have so many hours in the day. But most people, if philosophy touches them, they shatter. They atomize. They turn to dust. It is win-lose between philosophy and delusion, and most people are almost entirely composed of delusion. They are only allowed as much reality as serves the masters. But they are not allowed any reality which disturbs their masters. And it could be the priests, the parents, the teachers, the government, whatever, right? 
do you, do you think it's your, I mean, your confidence in the arguments and, I mean, is that what shields you from, like, people's disapproval or, like, disagreement and stuff? I didn't say that very clearly, but, um, uh, sorry, yeah, I'm a bit befuddled now. <laughs> well, it's just empiricism. And look, I'm not, I mean, I'm saying this stuff kind of glibly. This is hard-won knowledge for me. This is not like I, when I was seven, I finally realized that, right, like, I, this is this is knowledge I've acquired or accepted, really, since I went full-time. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about when you. No, no, it's like, look, I, my God, like five or six years ago, I I still talked to the mainstream media because I thought that facts mattered, right? I thought that the truth and reality and and evidence mattered, right? Right? So the media said, oh, Steph is, is telling someone to leave his family, right? I listen to the show. I'm like, oh, no, the show that's been published, I'm clearly saying I'm not telling you to leave your family. I said that two or three times. I'm not telling you to leave your family. I'm just saying that it's physically possible. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you to leave your family. Right? And I thought, well, no, it's right there. I mean, obviously, they, right? And I needed to be schooled. That was my first real encounter with the mainstream media. And I just, that's why I don't, nothing to do with them anymore. I get requests for interviews, just completely ignore them. Just don't talk to them. Mm. Right? Because... Um, so this is you know, more hard-won knowledge, right? I mean, it's the, the degree to which people will just simply make up stuff and lie. I clearly say, I'm not telling you to leave your family. The headlines around the world. Guy tells kid to leave his family. Well, he was an adult. I never told him to leave his family. Doesn't matter, right? Facts don't matter. So, I mean, this is sort of hard-won knowledge for me, right? I hope that you don't have to go through <laughs> that, right, to, to to get this kind of knowledge. I'm trying to give you the the shortcut or the shorthand version of it, right? Yeah, yeah. But that, uh, you know, all all the mistakes that I make is because I fail to go back to empiricism. I fail to go back to the evidence. It's because other people's need for me to believe that there's something other than who they are infects me, and therefore I ignore the evidence of who they are. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's a lot yeah. easier for people to try and fool me into thinking they can think than it is to actually learn how to think. If I had a magic switch that if I just strum, strum, uh, strum random shit on a guitar, people think I'm a great guitarist, that's a lot easier than actually learning how to become a great guitarist, right? So that's just go back to empiricism. This is what I have to just keep reminding myself. Whenever unreality opens its wide shark-like jaws under my motive powers, I just I just go back to the evidence. What is the evidence? I have a hugely unprecedentedly unique historical perspective on the intelligence of the species because I'm running what I think is the most intelligent conversation in the world. I've been running it for many years. I have received tens of thousands of discrete data points worth of feedback, at least probably 100,000 or more by now. I have a very unique, unprecedented perspective on the philosophical capacities of the species. And things get fucked up 
when I surrender to other people's delusions of competence rather than going with the explicit, highly repetitive evidence that grinds over me every day like a bunch of marching red ants that takes my flesh if I ain't well protected. Hmm. Just go back to the evidence. Right? I'm never trying to substitute my judgment for other people's judgment, right? These are my arguments. And so my suggestion is, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but my suggestion is, no, don't cut people out of your life because they are evidence you've been ignoring. And to cut them out of your life is not going to have you accept the evidence. Keep engaging. Keep doing what you're doing. But be aware of what you're doing. Think about what you're doing. Crush illegitimate hope and look at the evidence of how people respond and what happens. Keep, keep doing what you're doing. But do it in an alive and awake way. Yeah, well, I'm compelled to do it. I, I don't want to stop. So, yeah. No, no. Then keep doing it. And at some point, you will want to stop. Every time, every time I check on the intermittent times that I check the uh, YouTube comments, I must ban 10 people at least. <laughs> at least. Yeah. Not for disagreeing with me. That's what idiots say. Dev just disagreed, bans people who disagreed with him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like my supposed anti-Semitism, right? Like, he's rumored to be anti-Semitic. It's like, yeah, and it's a lot easier than actually finding anything I've said that's specifically anti-Semitic. Because for it to be anti-Semitic, it would have to be against Jews and not against other religious groups. I try not to discriminate in my dislike of religious groups. But um, people who obviously are just hostile or are crazy or manipulative, it's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to try and engage you. Because I know how deep-rooted that behavior is. It can't be fixed over the internet. The, you know, dedicated teams of psychiatrists can't cure a lack of empathy. They can't cure sociopathy. They can't cure any of that shit. Do I think my typing is going to do it? Oh, God, no. It's delusional. <laughs> you know, they can incarcerate people. They can put people in LSD drug trial programs. They can give people therapy 12 hours a day when they're completely under these therapists and psychiatrists' power. They still can't solve sadism, cruelty, and a lack of empathy. Yeah. So what? I don't have control over these people. I don't have all the drugs in the world and all the therapy in my world. I don't have to confined in some place. The fuck do I think I can do? I can't do a goddamn thing. I mean, if the experts with all the resources and all the legal and white might of the state at their disposal can't cure these people, what do I? My typing is magic, right? My typing can change human biology. It can grow mirror neurons in other people's brains. That's amazing typing. No, it's just typing. But I mean, so you no, still do you still not. do the show, right? I mean, well, yeah, but but with awareness. Yeah, with awareness for sure, and and the the awareness is I'm just I'm trying to find the one in two hundred. Yeah. I'm not sure it's one in two hundred, but let's just go with that number. I'm just trying to find the one in two hundred. That's all. Yeah. Together, yes. if we so get much. enough numbers together, we'll be unstoppable. But there will be a great rending horror of self, of recognition, of self annihilation, of recognition of participation in evil, which I can't face or create or sustain alone. It needs to be a group of people who all see at the same time and are willing to accept the evidence of the inhumanity of man. We must have 
a tribe that can stand together and accept the mind-rending horror of the inhumanity of the planet. I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. Mike can't do it alone. Other people can't do it alone. We need enough people who can see that we can be a tribe that can sustain each other while swallowing the wretched horror of mankind's self-hatred and self-contempt for the infliction of false ethics, particularly on children. This is not something that an individual can survive the sight of. So I'm just trying to build a tribe of people who can see, who are willing to accept evidence, and I'm working on my own capacity to continue to accept evidence, to continue to accept the truth, not just in a theoretical way, not just in a wish-fulfillment way, which is very dangerous, but in a practical, tangible, this-is-the-shit-that-we-see way. Right. And if there are enough people who can get together without any illusions left, where all of the delusions have been absorbed by the great white sleepless shark of truth— when we have no illusions and we know each other and we can stand together against the collective madness of mankind, then we can build what will in effect be a new species. Mm. An unscarred, unbroken, unshattered species that can speak, that can communicate, that can love, that have empathy, that have curiosity, that recognize evil and the rare occasions when it will arise and can act against it as one. And keep the world safe from the ultimate predation of emotional emptiness. But we are a long way from that. Those people, very few of them can be made. Most of them will need to be bred. And they need to be bred in an environment uncontaminated by the endless bullshit of the old world. Right? The whole breeding arena of the species needs to be cleaned the fuck up. I don't allow crazy people around my daughter any more than I allow people with visible rotting sores and spots to give her a big, juicy, sweaty, infecting bear hug. No. My breeding arena is pretty fucking tidy. And that's why I say if you've got crazy, abusive, nutty people, hey, you can choose to have them in your life. You don't have that choice when you have kids. You can choose to inject yourself with an illness if you're a crazy bastard, but you don't have the right to inject anyone else with the illness, particularly people who are helpless and dependent upon you. And that's why I knew when I knew I wanted kids as soon as I started uh, dating my wife and got married, I knew we wanted kids. And I knew. Clean up the breeding pen. Clean up the breeding arena, babies. Because I don't have to, I can subject myself to my crazy family of origin. I cannot subject my child. And I really don't have much of a right to subject my wife to it either. It wasn't her goddamn fault. It wasn't mine either, but, right? Sure. So this is why I'm raising my daughter without crazy people. And without the effect that crazy people have on me. Right, in my life. Online, who gives a shit, right? But in my life. Yeah. And we are a hell of a long way from people even committing to breeding their offspring in a sane environment. And uh, so we're still at least two generations away from a tribe of people committed enough to reality to be able to absorb the collective horror of a highly manipulative X-mankind as we transition to something 
who would generally be called supermen, superwomen. Mm. And you could be one of those people. <laughs> Why not? I intend to be. I hope you will be. And that's the stakes that we're playing with, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I, I do see value in the Facebook thing. I mean, like the anti-spanking thing in the circumcision videos and stuff that I've shared. Like, even if I get a lot of flack for that, if it gets through to one in a thousand people, that's that's good. And I wanted to mention um, that uh, Austin James started a a post on the board about Facebook strategy and just you know maybe some of the FDR listeners like I don't mind having fellow FDR listeners on in my Facebook just so that we can back each other up in conversations like this being aware that you know we might not get through to people but yeah all right well I certainly wish you the best thank you for a, a wonderful call and thanks again to all the listeners tonight I actually missed a lot to show on Saturday night. I was like, oh, man, is it only Monday? Oh, man, is it only Tuesday? Yay, it's Wednesday. Get to talk to the listeners. So uh, I hugely appreciate that. Uh, thanks to everyone who calls in. Thanks to everyone who's supporting the show. FDRURL.com slash donate. It's always massively, massively appreciated. And uh, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week, everyone. I guess we will talk to you. Don't let Saturday. Take care. <laughs>